All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Physics. This is Joseph Guzman. So I just want to give y'all a brief introduction before dropping you into tonight's podcast. So this is our inaugural book club podcast, right? And so we're trying out a new format. It's meant to be a series that goes alongside our interview type podcasts. And for our very first book club, we are discussing the book Conscious by Annika Harris. So, of course, our discussion is not a replacement for actually reading the book. So, of course, go check it out and uh, read it on your own if you haven't already. And so, um, on this podcast, we have um, four physicists and one cognitive psychologist to discuss the topics. And we cover uh, many of the ideas present. And I think it was a really good discussion, and it's rather long, so of course feel free to take a break in between and digest it as you feel ready. Um, but anyway, so um, what I would just like to see is if you guys could share it with your friends, right? Like if you could talk about the ideas that we had in the podcast and share your thoughts with us, I mean, I would love that. And then, you know, if you think we did a really good job, um, try sharing it with Annika, right? Um like maybe we can see if we could get her on the podcast for those insider details and finally if you had any recommendations for future book club discussions feel free to send us those recommendations um we will prioritize shorter books as we our schedule is very busy and want to be considerate to all the potential guests time as well um but yeah we'd love to hear those suggestions so send those our way yeah, so I mean that's all I got for you. Check out, uh, check out the book and subscribe to the podcast and all that jazz. So, without further ado, let's get into tonight's podcast. This is Beyond the Physics. All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Physics. This is your host, Joseph Guzman. And today uh, we're talking about the book Conscious, A Brief Guide to the Fundamental Mystery of the Mind by Annika Harris. Right. So this is the first installment in our book club series. Right. So we're trying out a new format here. And I got a series of guests with me along with my co-host so um maybe we should have agreed on an order but uh, you could let irene go first and then whoever wants to volunteer can go next okay well hi everyone um i know the usual introduction i joe says co-host and i'm irene roman but yeah so i'm your co-host irene roman and um just as you already know from past podcasts i'm studying physics um i'm getting my PhD, hopefully, um, probably in a few years. And I am right now working in high precision calculation and uh, high energy physics. You want to popcorn someone? Terrence, you're next. All right. So um, hi, everybody. My name is Terrence. I am one of the co-hosts of the Eigen Bros podcast. Um, we do a YouTube uh, youtube um, podcast uh, you can also find us on you know 
um, Apple, Spotify, wherever you guys listen. Um, we have uh, Twitter as well, Instagram, TikTok even. Um, so check us out over there, just Eigen Bros. Um, and we talk about physics and whatnot. Um, and yeah, I'm here to listen kind of because I haven't read the book. So I'm going to be the, uh, the uh, unbiased third party here <laughs> as much as I can. And I guess I will popcorn uh, to Ed. Hello, everyone. My name is Edward. Um, <clears throat> I'm a recent graduate from UMass Lowell in medicine physics and a new hire as an engineer at Lawrence Livermore National Lab in the non-destructive evaluation group. So excited for that part of my, my future now. And I'll popcorn Ricky. Uh, hi everyone, uh, I'm Ricky. I am a psychology graduate. Um, I studied at the University of Texas, San Antonio. Uh, my interests are psychology and cognitive neuroscience. And in particular, I'm interested in psychedelics and how they affect consciousness and the brain. So I'm looking to apply to graduate school in the next year and hopefully get into a program looking at that stuff. All right, great. So um, of the people who are more classically trained in this field, I guess that would involve <laughs> Ricky, but um, uh, doesn't include philosophy, right? So like, uh, you know, I guess just starting off with the caveat, because to maybe avoid saying it every two seconds, like uh, we, we don't study philosophy, right? We might be talking about things from a perspective that like are well fleshed out, but we are unaware of it being in, you know, the sciences and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so let's get started talking about the book. Huh? So um, I guess to just do a real quick brief summary and then um, we can go into like the nitty gritty of the different chapters. <laughs> um, but anyway, so to give a brief synopsis of the book, basically, I think it's trying to summarize why consciousness is such a mystery, right? Like, and present, you know, a lot of the evidences and um, experiences that, um, that we currently have on scientific record to like breach into that very mysterious water and try to um, understand what's going on there. Right. So it, it, it's very scientific in the sense that like it presents many experiments, right? And it's relatively short, but like it's pretty um, jam packed full of different experiments and explaining the results and how that um, impacts how we interpret consciousness. Um, so anyways, my impression of the book, um, it's very small. I was already aware of a lot of the experiments that went on in here. Um, but that being said, I, I really enjoyed it. I think it's very insightful and I think it kind of changed my thinking a lot when it comes to consciousness and like considering whether panpsychism might be true and so on. But, um, I don't know, maybe you guys could share like what your impressions of the book just like overall were, like, how'd you feel like after you read it and any of those thoughts. I like uh, that it was, you know, so concise. It wasn't too technical. It was pretty easy to pick up. Um, I, I was also pretty familiar with a lot of the stuff in there. But, um, you know, I, like, for example, the double slit experiment, I've always had trouble with that one just conceptually. So it was nice. They had like the little graph and diagram and all that stuff and pretty easy to understand, I think, which is helpful because it's a 
very heady topic, obviously. I like the layout of the book. You know, it starts with a very sort of modern technical type of definition for consciousness. And then once you get your feet in the water for, with that definition, then it starts peeling and diverging and how that definition not, is not necessarily the all-encompassing end-all kind of definition. And then you start exploring uh, the little differences and then you go into the ultimately what is the kind of overarching thing is the panpsychism. Like that is the, the one thing goes from a scientific explanation of consciousness in terms of biology and consciousness and then panpsychism, which is like a, a definitely different, but it's still interesting because it's, there is some grounding in physics as far as some of the definition and, and, and that they give there. So it, it's pretty interesting. I mean, did you have any thoughts? Uh, I'll pass on this question. Go, I guess I can go jump ahead. in a little bit. Sure. I, I want to ask a question. I don't know if you guys, I, I disconnected for a little bit, but I don't know if you were able to define uh, panpsychism. I've never heard of that term. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, it's one of the later <clears throat> chapters in the book, it, like, um, I think it devotes a decent amount of time to panpsychism. Um, panpsychism, panpsychism, right? They address like two possible branches. Um, one is that consciousness in, is intrinsic to all forms of information processing. Uh, Irene and I had some trouble like interpreting what that even means. Yeah. Uh, and then another one is that consciousness stands alongside the other fundamental forces and fields in physics. So it's like as fundamental as like, you know, E&M, gravity and so on. That sounds really um, psychedelic. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the one does it. My, my kind of perspective on panpsychism, just from what I remember from my undergrad is like, yeah, like the way they kind of explain to us is that um, like the idea of like, a rock having some form of consciousness or, you know, um, a grain of sand or something. But I mean, in, in the book, I think she talks about how it goes, it can go down to, you know, atoms and basically everything in the universe has some sort of level of consciousness, I guess you could say. Yeah. And the, and the, the book gives a very simple kind of concise definition where it's, it's a hypothesis about the ultimate intrinsic nature of, of energy and that the, intrinsic nature of energy is experience. And then going back to the original technical def definition, experience, right, leads to like draws from consciousness because you have to be conscious to, you know, truly be aware of that experience. So that, I think that that jump to it from the beginnings to this is like, it's an interesting buildup. And yeah. it, it is a very, very nice, concise book. Yeah, without the buildup, it I get how it could like from the outside it could appear hippy dippy like you might say, but uh, <laughs> but there there is a buildup and uh, once you get into the details, I think it does start to get pretty convincing. I'm not necessarily convinced that it's true. Uh, now I'm like pretty uncertain as to what um, I consider more likely, but 
yeah, it's at least so, caused me to doubt more than I did before. So can I ask this, Joe, then you had two parts of that. You had two different distinct kind of definitions for that panpsychism. Yes. Um, the second one in particular struck me as the most um, kind of absurd sounding one, but would that be, um, would that be able to, would I be able to say that it, it's something like um, consciousness would be like a field. So like QFT, you have like fields. Would that, would that be an accurate description? I'm not sure, but potentially, right? Like, okay. Um, okay. when I've had conversations on this, yeah, I mean, it kind of leads to those types of avenues, right? Okay. Okay. But well, I have some, a lot of, I have some counters for that for sure. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll get into those details in a second. I think we should start from the beginning to at least uh, get the definitions out of the way. So then we could start playing around in them. Right. Um, but so in chapter one, right, they have a mystery hiding in plain sight, right? And basically, um, also, so like the starting question is basically why should anything in the universe be conscious in the first place? Like, is it necessary for survival for, you know, is it a requirement that you have a universe, therefore things must be conscious? Um, like, why does it exist at all? And then the definition they use is from Thomas Nagel, right? A very famous paper on what it is it like to be a bat, right? Uh, the definition they give is an organism is conscious if there's something that it is like to be that organism, right? So it's, it's very, by intention and structure, it's supposed to be subjective, right? Because it is a subjective experience. Um, but basically it's just saying like, if you can imagine, you know, that entity or creature or whatever has some experience like a bat, um, then you could say that it has consciousness under this uh, definition. But so anyways, I want to get you guys a sense of like what you think of this definition um, and whether it's useful and powerful and so on. You know what? I, I when I when I was reading that definition, it was not that easy to to grasp because the the fact that us and you know people with a consciousness can even pose that question is kind of like you know the bat wouldn't think that. Look at us and like I wonder what what this person is thinking. You know, necessarily you can't say that. You know, so I think it's one of those. Uh, like closed loop kind like you can't really answer the question because you're in the system kind of thing you have to be like outside observer somehow so just the fact that we're conscious and we can make that conscious thought then we're thinking about can we attach this consciousness to another object aka the bat as opposed to the the common uh rebuttal would be oh a rock all of a sudden a rock is conscious because like what does a rock feel if if you smack it you know so I thought it was just interesting because I was trying to reconcile that like I'm conscious so I, yeah I mean kind of going off that I I always have I have a I had a question I guess if you if you think that um it's possible to have consciousness without necessarily this aspect of I guess I would call it memory where you can remember the 
the moments of consciousness and kind of reflect on them. Can you still have consciousness that is present in moment to moment, but never, um, you don't have like an ability to kind of go back to your memory and then um, take out that memory and then have it be in the conscious experience again. So I guess I asked that because I think that changes the answer as to what is conscious or not, right? Um, Because if you can have a level of consciousness that you're not even aware of, but you are like just conscious moment to moment um, and making actions, but maybe you don't have the ability to reflect backwards, um, then I think a lot of creatures would fit into that definition of consciousness. So I don't know, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think it's kind of tricky because um, I think the sort of traditional view of consciousness is sort of like categorical, right? Like humans have like a certain level of consciousness and it's completely separate from a dog or a cat or whatever. But um, I think sort of to bring back panpsychism a little bit, like it's kind of more useful, I think, to think of it as a gradient. And that was one of the things that was kind of a shift um, in the way I read this book, you know, the way I thought about consciousness before as sort of like, levels i guess this is more of a gradient and when i think about it that way i can kind of see like the argument for you know like rocks or whatever to put it that way having consciousness well i'll pose a question off of that because irene uh, mentioned a good kind of segue where uh that her definition would then include animals right because of the memory right a dog remembers when it was hurt, right? And they'll avoid it. So it's conscious of that pain, therefore avoiding it in a sense active memory, right? But then that brings into instinct, right? There's a lot of animals that have instincts that are not taught. It's just like, think of it as a species memory as, as a whole, as, as opposed to like an individual organism type memory. And then in that case, I think that, that, that uh, attribute of memory then probably extends even further to not just uh, um, like multicellular life, but then unicellular, right? Prokaryote bacteria, amoebas, they hunt, right? They hunt, they, that's an instinct for them to hunt and eat. I can't say that they have memories, but that instinct is a sort of like species related type memory. So I would think with that definition, however, including not just uh, organisms history, right? Memory, but also instinct, then I think we can, that can kind of lead to a more broader definition and include even more creatures, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you in the sense that like yeah. the, the thought experiment I posed was the, it's corny, but it's uh, like 50 first dates, right? It's yeah. like there are people who, you know, lose access to, you know, their uh, short-term memory, right? And um I would still consider that person conscious, right? Like say like every 15 seconds, they have to reset, right? And they're just suddenly aware of the world again, right? But I would still regardless consider that person conscious. And if, if that's the case, then um, that indicates to me that it's not, uh, memory isn't fundamental uh, requirement for consciousness, right? And so I think that does, uh, much that does really broaden the scope of what we can consider a conscious being. I so think, what do you, oh, oh, oh yeah, sorry. go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think um, 
I was just trying to think of what would be the most fundamental thing for consciousness. And um, I think maybe the best approach, in my opinion, would be to look at some of the most simple, the simplest organisms that you can think of that we would still consider to be conscious. And I guess that would probably be like single celled or or organisms, like let's say um, uh, white blood cells or something along those lines or bacterium. Um, and I think the, 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 I would consider those conscious in some sense because they have a, um, they have a, um, a particular, like a decision-making, um, there's like a fundamental thing where it looks like they can make decisions in some way, even if it's rudimentary, because if you think about a white blood cell, right, for example, um, a white blood cell it doesn't really make the decision to be able to fight off a virus, let's say with antibodies, but it has a decision to choose which virus it wants to attack. So I think that fundamental small thing that it's able to make some kind of decision that I would say is some, there's something fundamental to that. Right. But so, so Terrence, are you saying that a white blood cell has consciousness? Yeah, I would say so. Would you say yes? Okay. Yes. Because I think, um, yeah, I think there's something fundamental there with it. Ha- it has some kind of choice. I, I know it's, it's kind of um, accepted too that, that people would say that a white blood cell has consciousness and you can contrast it with something like a virus because people don't, I think it's generally considered that viruses are not living things. And I think there's a really interesting um, thing to analyze there because you know, a virus and a bacterium, you know, they're pretty, you would think they're, you would think they'd be really similar, right? But one is considered to be a living thing while the other is not. And I think that's an interesting thing to maybe analyze the distinction between those two, why, why a virus would be considered living and why a um, white blood cell would be, or I'm sorry, why a virus would not be considered living and then a, a white blood cell would be. So, so I mean, I don't know enough about bio to speak about it, but it, like I would consider a virus to, if we're going to say white blood cells are conscious, I would say that same definition should apply to viruses. Definitely. Um, yeah, you would think that, but I think um, it's generally considered not to be. And I think that's because viruses don't have a decision-making capacity. Okay. Now, of well, course, I don't, I, I wish I would have like studied up before I was here, <laughs> but, um, cause there, there, there is, I've seen a list of criteria of why viruses are not considered to be living things, whereas white blood cells are, and maybe, I guess you could say they're living. I don't even know. Um, maybe it's, con- maybe the word is conscious. Um, but yeah, there is, there is a known, um, distinction between these two, um, you know, organisms but so uh, i i want i do want to toss it to ricky maybe he might know more about the virus situation but sure uh, sure I, yeah yeah but uh if i could just say something real quick it's just um i do have a problem with the like verbiage of saying it has a choice right and that's because of my intuitions about free will and like uh i would say that <clears throat> nothing really has a choice in the matter <laughs> including you or i uh so um, I think to me, the more fundamental thing would like that I was touring around with was like information processing, like having ability to like 
some type of sense, right? Of like being able to take information from the universe and then react to it or, you know, experience it in some way. Um, but anyways, before I go on further, um, Ricky, do you, have, I don't know if you have anything to say about the yeah, virus. I, I do. Yeah. 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 I think it's interesting. It's an interesting question because, you know, if you want to think about like what the difference is between a virus and a white blood cell, for example, like the virus uh, has some kind of behavior, right? Like some kind of process that it undergoes that I think is, um, I guess you could say encoded in its DNA, you know, like all of the processes that it undergoes are because of what's in the DNA. And uh, I think it's sort of not a stretch to say that, you know, the white blood cells, it's the same way, you know, it's DNA is what's choosing to, or having to behave a certain way. And I think maybe it just has like, you know, certain extra DNA, you could say to distinguish certain, um, I think you said that the white blood cell was like attacking, right? So like distinguish certain other cells or whatever. And so it's like, where do you draw that line? You know, it has some extra proteins or something. So yeah, it's just an interesting question. I don't have an answer, but, but I think it's an interesting question, definitely. So that kind of makes me just remember the comment I made earlier about instincts, right? Like a genetic, like now we're going down to a fundamental level, like a unit of information which is dna right that has a memory encoded in it and then is expressed so i think because viruses have dna or rna i believe i think it's rna rna yeah which is still the it's the first replicating molecule rna appeared before dna um so because that like kind of like a legacy is is you know, passed on per uh, virus replication, like that's that's a memory in its sense. That's like an instinct in there. Then I think we we would include that conscious uh, definition, right? Because it's like it's something in there is driving that forward, right? It's it's moving it forward. It's passing its genes. It's replicating. You know that that's a need for it to survive is to replicate. And it's encoded in its RNA. Yeah, I got a, a thing pulled up here on Cosmos magazine. I can just read off real quick on why they say. Oh, I found the same one. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. It says, uh, without a host, the virus simply cannot replicate. Um, finally, a virus isn't considered living because it doesn't need to consume energy to survive, nor is it able to regulate its own temperature. So basically, it says, um, on their own, they can do nothing until they enter a living cell. Without cells, viruses would not be able to multiply. Therefore, viruses are not living things. Okay. Well, that, that's very interesting because like even hearing that definition, so it's like I still would consider the virus to be conscious, right? But now if we're saying the definition of life is that, you know, it maintains homeostasis, so it's got to take in energy and it's got to be able to self-replicate and virus doesn't meet that criteria so it's not alive that's um that's fine with me I, fi fine if we want to use that definition then it's not alive but i would still want to call it conscious because it interacts with its environment right it has some way of like um you know navigating through the space and choosing cells to um you know rep to replicate itself and so on right 
And so, again, if we're going to say white blood cells are conscious, I still want to say viruses are conscious. And then we're saying life is no longer required for something to be conscious if we agree on that. Now, for me to jump in here real quick again, um, there sh- I think there should be some kind of threshold in which we say something is conscious or not conscious. Because after a, after a certain point, I think it starts to become useless to call, or t- it starts to become not as useful to say what is conscious and what's not, or what, on, let me get my facts straight, sorry. <laughs> I think it starts to get um, not useful um, to, to say something's conscious if it's, if it's at a certain point. So let me just try to clean that up. When you say like um, a virus is conscious, I think it's starting to get to the point where it gets harder and harder to say whether something's conscious at that level because um, we don't really have a good um, idea of when consciousness actually is emerges. So a co- consciousness would be an emergent phenomenon, right? It's kind of like how, um, I don't know. Uh, there's plenty of emergent phenomenon out there, but like, let's say, um, let's say you have a pro uh, two protons, right? Two protons can interact, right? But just because they're interacting and actually something's happening, you wouldn't call two protons conscious, it's only when you start adding those layers of complexity is when that consciousness is an emergent thing. So I think consciousness is simply just, it arises out of some kind of complexity of systems. So when you have multiple fo- no, multiple protons that are assembling into molecules that are assembling into whatever compounds, that's when you start to get conscious to consciousness to emerge. So there is kind of, there may be a gray, a gray, um, line of when it emerges but i think there is a kind of threshold and my my um i guess my conjecture would be maybe that threshold lies within the area of the virus maybe not but so i mean everything so the issue is you're starting with an assumption right you're starting with the assumption that consciousness is an emergent phenomena which is what we're questioning right so panpsychism posits that it's not an emergent phenomena, it's fundamental, right? That um, like the common worldview is that, you know, you take a certain amount of stuff, material, and get a very specific configuration of atoms and somehow consciousness emerges from it, right? That's the common worldview. But panpsychism says that you don't need a specific configuration, right? You don't need to draw a line in the sand anywhere. It goes all the way back to, you know, the most fundamental pieces. Yeah, I don't know if I would agree with that because um, I would think then if it goes back to the fundamental pieces, it sh- there should be a unit of consciousness then or something. There should be a particle like a boson or something for consciousness, yet we don't see anything like that. So why would we not be able to measure some kind of consciousness particle or something like that well terrence you know you you know we're not finished finding we don't have a complete full theory right of everything we're still looking for more particles in in general um so 
I don't think we ha- we don't even have a full theory of reality yet. So of course we don't know all of if there could possibly be another force or be some other force mediators, some other particles. Um, that's still in t- in question, right? Um, and could that be related to consciousness? That's maybe what panpsychism or one part of it is positing, but we don't know, right? Yeah, I can see what you mean, but um, the physics doesn't um, suggest that, I don't think. Um, we, we have no reason to believe that, I, don't, I would say. Um, at least nothing so far would indicate that. Um, so I think, for me at least, it would make much more sense for consciousness to be some kind of emergent thing rather than some kind of um, fundamental field or something, or, you know, I'm not sure what you guys would call it, some kind of, uh, maybe a fundamental force. Um, yeah, I don't see, I don't see anything in physics that would suggest that. So for me, I would rather just use Occam's razor and just say, so I would say, I would say no for that. And maybe yes to emergent phenomenon or something like that. Well, okay. So just, just a couple things here, right? Like, um, the first point is we do have evidence for it, right? You're conscious, right? Right now. (laughs) So that's what you think. I'm actually asleep so, right now. <laughs> <laughs> so there is good physical grounds to suggest that something is happening, right? At least, at the very least, within you and me, and you know. Yeah, but that doesn't distinguish between emergence versus um, a, a, a consciousness field. They still man- th- those two right, things will you- still manifest in the same. In the right, same but meat, right? what what I'm addressing is you, your first comment was that there's no physical evidence to suggest that that's true, right? I'm pointing you to the evidence that you have a subjective experience, right? So something is happening. It doesn't have to be a field. You're right, but there is evidence that something has to be going on. Yeah, well, my comment actually was not about there's no physical evidence. There's no evidence in um, the equations of physics that would suggest suggest that. Because usually when you're looking at a physics equation, right? Let's say if we're looking at the fundamental forces equate, let's the equations for fundamental forces, right? Um, so I guess like the standard model Lagrangian or something. Although I will put a giant caveat on this. I don't know shit about, or I, oh, can I cuss, Joe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know. I don't know anything about the standard model Lagrangian. It's a nasty beast, but nothing in there suggests that we need a consciousness field. So I'm just going to assume that that equation is probably squared up enough to where we don't need a consciousness field and emergence would make much more sense because we already see emergent phenomena all the time. You know, um, a bunch of particles forming into water, making the property of wetness, for example. Um, You see emergent phenomena all day, all the time. So to me, a so, and then you have to, and then you can just ask yourself, what does emergent phenomenon look like for a collection of molecules and particles? And then for me, that would be consciousness. Why not? Um, so I think it's, I think it's uh, analyzing it in the wrong way to think that consciousness needs some kind of um, fundamental field attached, or, you know, to explain it. So, um my response would be that why would you expect that the standard model Lagrangian would subsume consciousness in the first place? Why is that your starting point? Why it would reveal consciousness? You said that you, st- you start with the standard model Lagrangian, 
right? And you, you don't have a consciousness field popping out, mm-hmm. right? Why would you assume that given what we've already said and how we constructed the standard model Lagrangian, why should it be in there in the first place would be my question. Well, I would assume if it's a fundamental field, it should be in there, right? If it's fundamental, it needs to be in there. Well, I mean, to Irene's point, it's not complete, right? We already know it's not complete. This is true, but I don't think that's the incompleteness. I think the incompleteness has to do with nothing, nothing to do with that. So I would not even, I would not even think that that would be the right way to go. We know that the standard model is complete just because of basically um, gravity and uh, general relativity not being able to be um, uh, unified, right? So the consciousness isn't even a factor in the standard model Lagrangian. So that's another reason why I would not even assume it to be in there. It just doesn't well, seem like the right approach to me. Well, I mean, I'm not arguing for or against it or anything, but I'm just saying that if you can find a way that you can add a term to the standard model Lagrangian, and then you still, the results that you get from experiment are still consistent with that standard model Lagrangian, even with that extra term. And then you say this extra term represents consciousness. And yet every, all of the experiments that you have in the LHC are still consistent with that, with that model, then that wouldn't refute the addition of consciousness to the standard model. And on top of that, it's still at higher energy LHC experiments. You start seeing extra phenomenon that you didn't even see before. And then you have to try to explain that phenomenon and then alter the standard model um, to say, okay, we didn't even notice this at higher energies. There's these extra interactions that we didn't see before. Now, how are we going to fix that? We have to add more terms, add more particles. So it's something that could exist that we haven't even been able to observe yet because we're not even at that level of energy. Um, So I don't think that it means it's, that's why I mean, I'm not convinced that it is or is not possible yet, just because I think that there's still room. Um, I don't think it's been fully refuted is what I mean. I think there's still room that it could be possible. Um, But like you said, the emergent, um, emergent consciousness also seems like it's also something that also makes sense as well. So it's also a possibility. So I just don't like to close my doors on anything until I've like 100% refuted that and showed mathematically it's not possible, right? Um, and I don't feel like I'm at that level or we are at that level as a community yet. Yeah, I definitely like your points, Irene, um, for sure. You can never say what's, you never know at the end of the day, right? But from the little physics that I do know, I would not go down that route. Um, there's an interesting thing where sometimes with math and science, you know, you want to insert these things well, I guess it's not wrong because you, you always want to try a bunch of different things. There's many approaches to doing math and physics, right? So as long as it works at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Um, but to me, I just like to, when I approach a problem or if I'm approaching some kind of physics, um, trying to solve something unsolved, I need to see some kind of indication to even go down that rabbit trail at all. And there's been nothing to me that suggests for me to go down that rabbit trail in terms of um, looking at look at consciousness as some kind of fundamental field. Emergence, yes, seems to be the, the way that makes the most sense in my opinion. But, so, you know, I'm just saying the same thing over and over now. Right. <laughs> right. So, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. What, 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 like, like, I hear you say, like, it needs to be an emergent phenomenon or that's the one that makes the most sense, right? Cause you have a collection of 
of matter that's interacting in such a way that the sum of the parts all of a sudden gives you this new entity that wasn't there before, right? Because I, I would think that that would be kind of like the logical part, right? You know, and as uh, Joseph and I were saying is that right now we are conscious, right? That is our state of being. That is a indisputable fact at the moment. And we can't prove it scientifically. It's like, we know it's there and we're trying to analyze our, like we're trying to analyze inwards, like the brain studying the brain, right? That's the kind of closed system that's really hard to truly get all the uh, secrets out. But then I kind of think about what about in the sense of like dark matter, right? We just, we're aware of it because of its gravitational effect, but we cannot detect it. It doesn't interact in any other way other than grab through gravity, right? And making the analogy, like that is a conscious, we'll just say that its effect in its surrounding is us being aware of its effect, right? And we can't, at the moment, we cannot experimentally find the progenitor of it. We don't know what the real particle, the force, none of that. But we just know from our observation and our uh, best reasoning that there's something there. And I think that's the same way with consciousness, right? In our best reasoning, in our own personal experience, we see and we know this is what we think it is. Now we're just trying to experimentally find that just like dark matter and, and all the other uh, unknown things in the universe, right? As physicists and the scientists of all types, we're, we're fundamentally, we're trying to discover this, right? Describe it, form a theory that A, matches observation and predicts, you know, future observations. And then we run with that and we build our knowledge. And I think we're in that stage. We're still in that stage. Yeah. That was really well said. I, I think it's an interesting point. I hadn't uh, like made the connections. So I, th I think that's pretty interesting. But I'm just going to jump in so I could move the conversation forward to other topics and stuff like that. And I know, given the rest of the book, we'll definitely be coming back to this conversation anyway. So um, anyway, so I'll move on to chapter two, right? So we talked about the <laughs> definition, right? And um, so... Chapter two, one question I want to pose to you guys is um, basically it's um, asking the question of how we can determine whether something is conscious, right? We were already kind of exploring that with like the white blood cell and the virus uh, conversation we just had, but like specifically, like, is there any evidence for like a human brain or would be the simple case, uh, the easiest case for us? Um, for a human brain, is there any evidence of consciousness that we can detect from the outside, right? As an outside observer, someone else, can we detect whether they're actually conscious? And um, I'll bring up two case studies just to elucidate what we're talking about, because that was talked about in the book. Um, and I know I was talking on your podcast, Terrence, so I'll just be repeating. Oh, really? That. Yeah, because... Juan did his study, even though he's not here. Um, he did his homework, I mean. But anyways, so it's basically a phenomenon of like people being locked in, right? Um, uh. Right. So um, anyway, so it's people being locked in, right? It's i.e. people that are like paralyzed, right? From the outside, they look like um, nothing's going on. There's no lights on and 
in their in their head, but um, there have been instances where these people who are paralyzed can have found ways to communicate, like through the blinking of their eyes or something like that. Like they seem like they're in a vegetative state, but they're actually conscious and aware. And people had no idea until they made this like discovery of how they communicate. So, anyways, with that all out there, like, do you think there's any way that we can like? tell whether someone is conscious consciously aware in the present moment um what do you guys think um i guess i'll jump in um so i would just say it's all about stimulus and um reaction right i think it's a little bit of cheating kind of with the locked in syndrome because at least you still get eye movement Let's make it even harder by making it a complete black box. Just imagine if someone was completely locked in with no, no, no way to even communicate at all, right? Not even through eye blinking or anything. And I would still say yes, because as long as you're a conscious entity and you're processing some information, that information needs to be that need that information needs to show up in some kind of electromagnetic signal or something. And the thing is, if we can probe the brain to be able to do, let's say, for instance, EEG scans or something like that, we can measure those electrical signals to see what the um, response is to some kind of stimulus. I guess the hard thing though would be to actually translate those signals. But I would imagine, let's just say, let's just assume we have the most advanced tech. If you can translate those signals into an actual or you can decode that message, then I think you can measure a being being conscious in some sense. Um, but then I guess the, quite, the hard question becomes then, um, are those responses indicative of a conscious entity, right? And not just like, let's say a computer, a computer's response. That's when it gets difficult, right? Um, and I guess that's harder for me to answer. I have to think about that one more, but I guess you could possibly go down the whole Turing rabbit hole because we know Turing has, you know, he's created a system where, you know, he has the, um, what is it called? The uh, Turing test for AI, basically where if an, if an artificial intelligence is truly human-like, then it should be able to complete a Turing test with some kind of, you know, accuracy. I don't know what it is. Um, but yeah, I would start there. Maybe a Turing test would be the way to actually decode whether those, you know, EEG signals are actually the product of something that's conscious or not. Yeah. So um, I don't want to take up too much of the air, but I'll just bring up, since you brought up the other example, I could clarify that because they give another example in the book of people who undergo anesthesia, right? Who, um, you know, they look knocked out to the surgeons, but somehow they're perfectly aware of everything that's going on during the surgery. So like from the surgeon's perspective, it looks like the lights are out, but um, they're actually fully conscious of everything that was going on. So that kind of sounds like the example you're bringing up. Um, I want to say, uh, yeah. um, if I may. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I mentioned a few years ago, I was at that conference. It was like the future of becoming human, I think is what it was called. And Christoph Koch was there and him and his colleagues presented some of this work actually. And I want to say that they had some work where uh, it didn't have to do with eye blinking. I think they, they might've even done, um, I guess it'd be called a, 
CEG, uh, where it wasn't on the scalp of the, of the brain, but I think they actually went into the brain itself and put electrodes in there and um, like provided some kind of stimuli, stimuli to the person in that vegetative state. And, and yeah, I guess, so the question is like, you know, if there's some kind of response to that, you know, like you were saying, Terrence, is that consciousness? And I guess, you know, that's the truth. That's the trick. That's the question. Where do you draw that line? That's interesting. I was just, uh, from my bio break, I heard locked in syndrome and now yeah. this, but it just kind of made me think of, uh, something because this is, this is the issue of consciousness in the medical field is extremely important for a definition of death, right? Because if you have someone who's being artificially kept alive through some means, right? That is a huge legal and ethical issue for the doctor, right? Do no harm for the family who are hoping for their loved one to wake up and, you know, regain consciousness. So, you know, there's a lot of tools to measure the activity, right? EEG, blood flow, you know, all right, is there blood flowing through the brain? Is there electrical activity? Like all these are our definitions for, for consciousness, right? Because it's like, is it a living thing or is it just a piece of meat now that we're just probing? And I think that is a huge thing because um, there are cases like a maybe 10 years ago, it was uh, Terry Chivago. It was a huge legal case there because she was in a persistent vegetative case. And the doctor saying, uh, no, her brain is pretty much destroyed, you know, but her family was like, no, she's, she's, she has a reflex. Like, like if you poke her eyelid, like there's, I guess enough of her brainstem was alive that she had some basic re reflex. So, you know, that was a definition, like is a ref just because you, instinctively have a reflex to a stimuli that doesn't necessarily mean you're conscious right but if we do assign that consciousness then are the doctors going to be liable for murder if they make the decision to pull the plug right so that's a, like that definition of consciousness isn't just a philosophical thing it's a real life medical issue because they have to draw a solid line they have to stick to it because you know people unfortunately that that is that is, a, that is something that's super important. Like, what is the definition of death? Because to be dead, right, you're not living. That's the cessation of consciousness. So that our definition of, of life and death will affect, you know, that definition of what is, what is it to be conscious? How far do we go with that? Like, you know, it's a lot of ethical stuff in there too. And it just, that topic just brought that into mind. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I hadn't considered those ethical implications, but yeah, I agree that it would have drastic impact. Depending it's on quite the quagmire, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, along this topic that might be elucidating in the realm of philosophy um, <clears throat> is uh, who brought it up? David Chalmers, right? Uh, David Chalmers posed the philo philosophical zombie, right? Oh, yeah. It's, it's basically, um, uh, just positing the existence of a person or a zombie, basically a, a, a person who from the outside looks perfectly conscious, right? Um, they react and to all the stimuli in the appropriate ways to the point that you'd say, oh, this person's conscious, but little they know on the inside of their brain, you know, they're just, you know, cogs and wheels or whatever, you know? 
Um, and so this is the, the philosophical zombie. Like, is it possible for such a zombie to even exist? Um, like, are we just going to say, like, if it looks like it's conscious and it talks like it's conscious, like you, uh, Terrence, you were saying with the Turing test, then we're just going to say it's conscious or, um, you know, if we know for a fact that, that they're just cogs and wheels um, rather than like a wet, you know, brain in there, uh, is that sufficient to say that it's actually not conscious? I, I guess another test, I was trying to think just now, what, um, what would I do if I was locked in, let's say, to communicate that I'm conscious? And let's say it was like a computer, it's like, you know, doctors were probing me and they were like, I'm a black box now. And they're like, you know, we're just going to turn this thing off or kill this thing if it doesn't prove to us that it's conscious. And I was thinking that maybe the question to ask would be, you ask the black box, which is me in this scenario, you ask, um, do you want to live? And I think that's really the question. I don't know if that really would indicate it's conscious, but I guess it probably wouldn't matter then if it is or not, as long as it wants to live. So if you can ask the black box in some fashion, if it wants to live and that black box is able to communicate that, then I think that's, that might be enough. This just might be one of these questions where, yeah, philosophically it may be impossible to answer, but practically it might be just as simple as asking, does this thing want to live? Yeah. If you could get an answer to that, right. Which would be difficult, but like, um, not to be too edgy, but uh, that could just be a product of being like having DNA, being a construct of DNA, right? They want like the selfish gene kind of idea. Like they want you to procreate and exist and survive. That's encoded in us, right? Like if we're, if we want to expand our definition of consciousness to other types of creatures, um, that might, I could imagine that requirement might not be met. But ethically, for like humans, yeah, totally. Yeah. So I guess sentient is the only thing that we could measure then. Conscious is a little bit harder. Yeah. And that would be a definition of is it alive or is it just, is it a corpse? You know, kind of like the ethical thing back when I was mentioning earlier. Um, this was a random <laughs> little test that I thought about because you're like, oh, maybe another test if you were locked in, right? Because it, my understanding is if you're locked in, your body's paralyzed, but your mind is keeps going, right? So you, you can't necessarily do a physical motion. Um, but then I was just thinking uh, about people who are like quadruped plegic you know or paralyzed from the waist down they my understanding is that they can still get it on right like there's still a a sexual kind of arousal that goes there so i was thinking like for a test at least for a guy that you know if you wanted to show that you wanted to communicate you could uh get an erection up and down right that'd be like a like a like a binary right up is one down is zero form some sort of rudimentary communication with your you know <laughs> that'd be a really a... shitty that'd be a really shitty time to have uh, erectile dysfunction uh, yeah so <laughs> obviously obviously it wouldn't be like the the test to go on there but just in a way you know if you're saying like if your mind is conscious 
then if you have no control that and I'm, I'm, my understanding also is that that is a parasympathetic thing like you don't have control over it. it's a, like it's from your 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 parasympathetic nervous system which is which should be unaffected if you're paralyzed right that's a different kind of mechanism so that type of uh, response i think will still be should in theory still be uh available to those who are locked in but it was just a random kind of divergent thing that i just kind of thought of when you were mentioning that no that's okay that's good um right oh and so i just want to bring up this other thing to like um in this chapter i guess they're talking about like you know whether you can find evidence for consciousness from the outside right and maybe to extend people's intuitions if you think like oh humans are conscious but like maybe not plants or something like that right um they bring up some studies one of the most interesting ones is um by susan simard right she studied uh my my cortisol networks getting some feedback um Anyway, so they're basically just underground networks of fungi that are used to send communications between trees, right? So um, like if a tree is, you know, uh, is dying, right? They could send carbon to it. And um, if like they need to make room for their progeny or whatever, you know, they could send specific signals to communicate with each other. You know, they even call it, the earth's natural internet right um these mycorrhizal networks so it's just an interesting case study to think about because it it checks a lot of the boxes for like what you might want to consider as conscious right like you have this network of information flowing to and from different places and uh, it's reacting to its environment and so on so um it sounds like we might be all on the same page. I don't know if anyone had any troubles with like accepting whether a plant was conscious, but um, I don't know. What do no, you guys think about? It It did make me think of something. And when I was reading that, uh, the movie Avatar, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that was the whole plot is that this, the, the, the planet is connected, you know, and it kind of, I think if I remember correctly, the, the giant tree is the center of it and everything radiates from there right or something and uh, second but yeah something like that yeah you know so i was i was just thinking that right now and um and even from the plot right we had two two groups of people one that just wants to exploit the planet because like uh we want to make money and nothing's alive and whatever and the other group of the scientists saying no everything's connected just you know you hurt this thing and everything else feels it so it's kind of like i can see that as being a even right now, if we're discussing two groups of thought, right? Like one is it's just people because we have higher higher level thinking. We're we're the conscious. The other one with panpsychism or even the plants, right? The interconnected roots. Each each one is aware of the other one in in that sense. So I just it just kind of reminded me of Avatar. But it's been a hot minute since I've seen it for sure. <laughs> I think uh, the other thing too is like, you know, as humans, we have language, so we we're able to communicate these like complex ideas. But um, as you were saying with, the, with the, the networks, you know, they're able to communicate in their own way. And, you know, I would argue maybe if they did have language or something like it, you know, they, they probably, we might, you know, question, are they conscious? 
because you know if you want to go back to the idea of information processing they're communicating some kind of information and it's being processed and then reacted to i guess we just have the benefit of language bees dance to get their their point across right they're like oh there's a flower over here let's do my little my little dance and then it's homies know where to go <laughs> Okay, so if there's nothing else to add there, then um, going on. I just to... know vegans aren't going to like that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only thing they'll be able to eat is rock salt now. <laughs> that's the only, Conscious. That's, Conscious. The, only, <laughs> that's yeah. the only thing that's not derived from a plant is rock salt. Oh, yeah, if you're panpsychist, there's no getting out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Your lifespan yeah. is very short. <laughs> right. But so the next thing I just want to bring up was pretty interesting. Um, I didn't know all the specifics of this, but it's basically about the binding process, right? So um, uh, again, like a lot of this was covered on your podcast, Terrence, but um, it's how information gets integrated um, to your brain, right? Uh, To your brain, from your brain to your consciousness, right? So like, say you're playing tennis, right? And uh, you have your racket and you hit the tennis ball, right? There's, there's the feeling of moving the racket, of the sound of hitting the ball, and then, um, you know, the pressure of, and so on and so forth. And the, seeing the photons of the tennis ball coming to your eye, right? Your brain um, does this process of binding, which is basically taking all that information, the sound, the light, the sense, the feeling, um, and basically you know, does some video magic, right? It video edits it all together, puts it in a nice package and then presents it to your consciousness. So it all makes sense, right? So the point is, is just that there's all this processing of what's going on in the universe before it even gets to your awareness, right? And like, what implications does that have for like consciousness and whether it's necessary at all? Mm. So you're telling us we're living in the past, right? Is it, yes. Everything's yes. a time delay. Uh-huh. Yeah. What I found interesting about that, that um, the author, I think, made a point to emphasize was the, you know, the fact that photons and like pressure waves and everything travels at a different speed. So it gets to our brain at different times, but it's still integrated and, you know, it's kind of stitched together into one like percept, I guess you could say. So that's uh, that's interesting, I think. Yeah, and you had something to say. Oh, um, I was just going off of that because they mentioned, um, in the sense that because our, I would you know most of our brain power is actually processed to vision. You you actually dedicate like eighty percent of your brain power to visual cues, right? So we can say we're visual creatures. Right. So, and I mean, photons, speed of light, what can we say, you know? So in that sense, like, you know, your, your retina is, is, is picking up a signal, bouncing back to your, you know, occipital lobe V one through five or connecting and you get a, a visual field, right? That, and they kind of bring up deterministic, right? Like, is are you truly doing this action 
through your conscious free will or you or or you you've done the action and you're just being aware of it in a time delay you know i thought that was interesting that they bring that up because we're going to see something well before we hear it or feel it you know that's the first sense is vision yeah so i mean joe kind of discussed a little bit earlier his viewpoint and i agree with him on um this idea that there is no free will and i guess the way i see it is that everything that occurs is just a result of energy interactions i mean yeah they are can be very complex depending on how complex the system gets but i still see them as just there's some probability of this event giving you some something else right some scattering event giving you a specific outcome and then that outcome occurs and then it interacts with another particle another probabilistic event um, and basically our whole experience are just these interactions and these probabilistic events and we don't really have any I don't believe we, ha we have the choice of how those how those interactions go I really think they're just probabilistic and we're just in after the fact you know observing passively what is happening to us you know what I mean that's kind of how I see it probably because I'm looking at it in terms of these interactions um and then that uh, kind of begs the question then what is the purpose of consciousness like why if these interactions are going to occur either way why do I need to be aware of them why do I have to have a, some form of like consciousness why can't they just occur without me being aware um and I guess your definition of what consciousness means also may go into play into answering that question, but I wanted to know what you guys thought about that. Um, and I think the book may address it. Um, but so what really do you guys see as the purpose of consciousness if these interactions will occur anyway? Um, what do you think that purpose is? Well, you know my answer. I just think it's emergence. So I don't think there is a purpose. I think it's an illusion. We just think of consciousness as some profound thing when it's really not. It's just all of the collection of particles, this emergent phenomenon occurs because the systems are so complex and there is so much, you know, like you're saying, probabilistic things going on in the background that in order for our brains to handle that, we need to have this emergent thing called consciousness. It's just like a liquid, you know, you see a liquid and you see this complex moving you know entity but it all gets kind of simplified in this emergent way you're not seeing all the individual molecules and things and you know the avogadro's number of h2o molecules it takes to make all those movements you know you're just seeing that emergent thing as liquid so you're saying it's a it's just a byproduct right it's just a byproduct of these interactions it just occurs it exists so then that even further, well, I want to see everyone else's response to that. And then I kind of want to say something a little bit on that, but. That's such a hard question. I, I don't know if I could say that I, I have an idea of what the purpose of consciousness is. Um, not to get like, you know, too hippy dippy, but uh, I know that, you know, in, especially in sort of the field of psychedelics, I guess you could say, um, one recurring theme that people have when they have these like profound experiences of uh, like eco death. I don't know if you are all familiar with that. I can explain it briefly. Basically, your sense of self dissolves and 
uh, people report that they, you know, feel one with the universe and with atoms. And, um, and so basically a lot of people kind of come back from these um, experiences with a, a message of love. And so, um, so yeah, like I said, not to get like too hippie or anything, but I don't know. I think that's one, one argument that, you know, sort of to direct our behavior and our evolution to love, maybe. I'm not saying I agree with that. That's, that's sort of um, one thing that I hear a lot in, in, like I said, in psychedelics, but I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, it's interesting also that, I guess I don't know enough about the details in terms of like what's actually happening, like at the molecular level, um, that how is the actual structure of the brain altered so that you have this effect of ego death where kind of the boundaries are dissolved and you have this experience of, let's say, oneness or something. Um, yeah. you, um, you know those details? A little bit, yeah. There's a there's a network in the brain called the default mode network. And uh, it, it seems to be responsible for creating your sense of self and kind of uh, just um, like an operating system which you, what's going on in the background. And when um, you, you take psychedelics, that network kind of dissolves um, and other parts of your brain that don't normally talk to each other kind of get connected um, and talk to each other. And, and that's one reason people have this experience of synesthesia where they kind of experience different uh, senses, like they can taste color or smell a sound or something like their, their senses are mixing. Um, that's about as much as I know. I don't really know, but I guess it's more of like a network not really molecular. Um, I'm not sure what's happening okay. on that level. Yeah. Uh, yeah okay. that, that is oh, a sorry. Good. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, let me flesh out my 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 because it's it. This is a damn hard question. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I just wanted to comment. Actually, that makes my emergence um, conjecture uh, hypothesis even more stronger with what Ricky's saying is because. I think consciousness is just straight up just your brain and your chemicals, right? It's just all these things because clearly you can see it with doing psychedelics. Your perception of reality just gets so changed up and so skewed, yet you're still in the real world. And that's just from little changes in your brain's chemistry, right? So that shows me right there that there's no like, there's no, um, well, I guess it doesn't really prove that there's no fundamental unit of consciousness, but it does help to show that this is some kind of emergent thing, I think, because it just shows you how such little changes can manifest such a different outcome of how you perceive reality. I would think that would indicate emergence over, um, over uh, some kind of fundamental field or something. Going back to the original, you know, the original thing we talked about earlier. Um, yeah, that's all, that's all I have to comment there. So um, I guess another question that's to follow up with you guys are saying, so would you still consider the person who ha who's undergoing ego death to be conscious? I would. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I would too as well. So I guess then that kind of brings up, okay, how do you define consciousness? Do you define it as just this normal type of consciousness or do you think there are like a, a lot of different flavors of consciousness like um the way that you know maybe 
that that's why with panpsychism, let's say maybe a raw could experience some form of consciousness that to us seems so foreign that we can't even conceive that type of consciousness, but perhaps it's a different flavor of consciousness. Is that something that you guys think is possible? To, I mean, to expand the consciousness definition to include a wide array of types of consciousness that aren't necessarily ours. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's, that's, uh, the answer is yes. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious to me, but um, yeah, I think altered states of consciousness also can inform us like on what, you know, regular consciousness is like. Um, and I think also, you know, if we look at kind of what the brain is doing, uh, I don't know if, so I guess you could say, you know, it's, it's, in, it's taking these signals from the environment whether it's light or uh, pressure waves or whatever it is, and it's uh, processing them, right? And so really, uh, I think there's this idea of the brain sort of generating consciousness, but uh, I think there's also a counter argument to kind of say that it's perceiving consciousness. And when I think about it that way, personally, like the idea of panpsychism becomes a lot more um, believable because I sort of think of the brain as like, a, and it doesn't have to be a brain, I guess, necessarily, but for us it is right and so it's sort of like a like a satellite dish of sorts that's tuning into um a frequency of consciousness uh, our normal consciousness and then when we take psychedelics for example maybe that just changes our tuning so that we're able to perceive different aspects of reality i guess you could say I don't so know maybe yeah yeah no it's good i mean it kind of is you know, different than Terrence's because obviously he's talking about the emergence and now you're talking about this possibility that there could be this fundamental force. Maybe there are these extra particles that we haven't discovered that somehow maybe interact with the complex system when it's set up in a particular way where maybe if the system's set up in a different way, there are no interactions in those in those systems. So you then consciousness doesn't arise. So maybe is that kind of what you might uh, or maybe there are just different interactions that give rise to different levels or different forms of consciousness maybe but yeah i think you said it well yeah okay yeah it's interesting i mean i i honestly both of them are interesting and something that i would definitely want to be exploring even in more depth probably even in the physics realm um because i think that you guys bring up both interesting and good points on that stuff so what about you ed have you fleshed out your answer oh i've been you know furiously writing away because you guys bring up a lot of good things and i'm trying to like uh, grab onto little things but there was something that i just thought of right here because you know the the idea right now like as ricky mentioned you know our brain interprets signals right we it brings in some sort of stimuli from the outside but if you really think about it in a sort of like really basic, like physical sense, it's an electrochemical black box, right? That's what our brain is. It's an electrochemical organ. So the, in that sense, it kind of, kind of made me think like, is it really important what's causing that uh, interaction, right? In a sense that 
reality versus simulation i'm bringing it into the matrix i just got i just went like this is what i was thinking like it's the, the freaking matrix you know would you say those people are actually conscious because they're being artificially stimulated and artificially kept alive for the process of harnessing energy which is completely inefficient if like that, their, their explanation doesn't make any sense but in any in any sense that uh they are they're objects you know but their 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 world their consciousness is being supplied can we say that in that sense those people are conscious like how do we how do we know neo wasn't just given that uh personality and experience right because he was hooked in how do we not how do we know that morpheus and all these other characters in that sense of free will consciousness you know now that that brings it into a question because was it truly emergent or was it supplied by an outside influence you know so i was just thinking that because our brain is literally just a if you look at it in the most basic sense is a sum of electrical signals and chemical potentials between different building blocks you know you can stimulate a neural neuron by an electrode that 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 is a artificial uh stimulation right it's not the neuron was aware of an object coming towards it like a baseball and it tried to duck so all these different neurons were firing no we stuck an electrode we zapped it we made its potential rise and then drop and it gave it a response so I think in, in that case, you, what I, what I think why the, for me, the matrix was such a mindfuck is because there is, once you're in the system, there is no way to tell what's real and what isn't because your brain is going to interpret it as real, right? Your experiences are real to yourself. Your consciousness is you. So to me, when I was reading this book and seeing that, like, you know, I, I come back to that whole closed loop. Like it's really hard to define something that you're inside it, right? The brain, it's really hard for the brain to understand the brain because you have to like kind of be an outside observer. And I, and I keep like that, like this is the third time I bring that, like it's really hard. And that also kind of ta uh, tangent to physics, you know, there is a, if you, if you, take the incompleteness theorem it, there is a fundamental limit to what we can know right because we're in the universe we can't we can only know so much from it and then we're limited by our 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 or our not only is it our technology but also our, our brain power right our theories can only go so far until we develop more advanced mathematics more advanced instruments so for our pursuit of knowledge for the universe also limits our pursuit to defining what consciousness is because our tools, our understanding is limited by the very thing that we're trying to understand. You know, that's, I think that is our fundamental limit. And, you know, like it's, it's interesting, like arguing and, and pursuing that, that, that truth. And there's nothing wrong with that. Honestly, that, that is the, the most pure and, and, you know, awesome thing to do is pursue something for, you know, pushing the boundaries, but, now that I think about it, like, man, there is, I don't know how far we can go into this discussion before we hit kind of like a fundamental wall in a sense. 
I guess I just got a bit of existential dread, like, oh man, we can never figure out the <laughs> this definition all of a sudden. But no, that, that's completely, you know, not true. We, we this is we're just scratching the surface. There's so much more to see. There's a just because we can't see the other side of the world doesn't mean that it doesn't continue if you just keep going past that little horizon, you know. But it's it's interesting. Like now, now that hearing you guys bring up a lot of these uh you know different points of view like now i'm starting to see some other kind of connections and i'm trying to write them down so that i can bring them up because you guys bring up good stuff and i don't want to i don't want to miss it yeah that was great i mean irene did you have more to uh respond to or ask i guess or um you know there's something i do want to discuss in terms of if we go with a because I would like to, we're not going to be able to flesh obviously all the details out, but I would like to really think about the different possible models and what would be the emergent model, what would be the fundamental force model, and then kind of like explore each of those and see how far you could go. Um, so I did want to kind of touch upon a little bit of some ideas on the emergent side and see what Terrence thinks since he's so into the He's, yeah. he's, he's like, he's on team emergence, 100%, right? Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say 100%, but, but definitely <laughs> more so than team uh, panpsychism. Okay, but so before we go down that road, I guess I wanted to bring up a couple things in the book that like help clarify questions, I guess, when it came to the emergence model. Would that help set you up, I guess, perhaps? Yeah, maybe. We'll see if it goes into it. Okay. <laughs> Right. So, um, so in chapter five, there's a couple uh, cases that I think really bring into question the emergence model, at least. Um, right. So I, I mean, I'm not even sold one way or the other, like I mean, but um, in chapter five, right, they talk about... Um, uh, they share a story about um, a grandfather who slowly like deteriorates in his mental capacity, right? So he like he loses like different aspects of his you know um, brain functionality piece by piece, right? And um, and so then the question like they felt like at some point he stopped being himself, right? And I guess that's one thing I think the book does really well is like kind of uh, help you lose your sense of self and or question that like um, what do you what are you defining as you and and so on but um, one other thing I'll bring up that is well known is uh, the split brain patients right you have um, Roger Sperry and Michael Gazaniga right they conducted uh, research on epileptic patients who underwent copious um, Callistomy, uh, I don't know how you pronounce it, where they have the severing of the corpus, corpus callosum, right? And they basically s s separate the two hemispheres of the brain. And so one thing that I was thinking of when I was reading this that I hadn't thought of when I heard it before, I guess, is basically with these patients, right? Um, they kind of have like two independent awarenesses, right? Competing for like... Um, competing for action right like so, so so something's aware to one side of um you know your body and your brain 
are not aware on the other side, right? So sometimes they they actually act in conflict with one another, right? Like, you know, um, and anyways, so I'm sure you guys are aware of it. So the, the point is, is that if uh, what, what I noticed from this case study is that consciousness survives splitting, right? Consciousness in a human brain survives a halving process. Right. You sever the corpus callosum, you have two hemispheres, and each one is independently conscious, I would say. Right? They're each aware of very specific things with their surroundings. And I just had a thought experiment of like, well, let's say like there were like corpus callosums all over the place for your brain, just hypothetically. I know it's not true, but just say there's bridges between those halves of your brain and you severed those right, then you have a brain in four places, right, in four pieces. Would that, would each piece also be independently conscious, like the two pieces in the uh, case studies we have now, and then, and then so on, right? It's basically, um, yeah, so basically my, my question is, is like, how many times can you do this having process before we would agree that those whatever that fundamental piece is, is no longer conscious. And why would you draw the line at that point? Like, <laughs> I just thinking. I guess if you quarter the brain, then each piece will get a limb and you could have your legs and your arms like flailing and doing something random. You're like, oh, I can't, I can't walk or control myself because they're doing something independent. You know, I, oh, one leg could be running, the other one could be hopping and you're doing some weird gait. And one arm could be like, waving and the other one's like flipping someone off and that'd be a very chaotic uh existence but you know i was going to mention the brain is very plastic in the sense that when one part of the brain is damaged other parts are recruited and you know take over for the function and there are cases where people like would have one hemisphere of the brain not just not just cutting the, the corpus callosum but literally remove a whole half of the brain, you know, for, for medical reasons. And these people still live a fairly, like, they're not necessarily half their, you know, body is like paralyzed or something like they can somewhat function pretty normally with literally half a brain. Or there's people that have suffered gunshot wounds where the bullet will destroy vast amounts of brain matter and they survive and still leave, live a normal life. So, in that sense, I think there is a limit to what the fundamental unit is, but I think it's what do you need to have left to control or allow your body to function, right? You still need a part of that to be able to regulate your heart, your body temperature, your breathing. Right. Okay. Right? So I feel I like just interject here real quick to clarify then because yeah. that's a good point let's just hypothetically say the brain that we're continually having is in a vat right mm. uh, my the thing oh. I've been, that i'm questioning is like when does consciousness stop right like if you keep oh. having like at what point does would we agree that that piece is no longer conscious mm. I think that's too tough of a question because we're basically inventing a biology that doesn't exist as far as we know. 
And the problem with inventing biologies that don't exist is biology is already hard enough <laughs> because we can't even really understand biology and as it is right now. I think it's almost an intractable problem. But let's just say playing along with your example, I think you're right, Joe, in the sense that if you keep having the brain, that uh, eventually it does become smaller and smaller pockets of consciousness. You know, if we, let's say if we approached the having to infinity, I'm sure if you took off one piece of that brain, you might lose the ability to like flip a coin or something and then nobody's going to care. You know, you're, you're still going to be mostly the same, I would imagine. Just going off the analogy. But um, where that line actually is, I think that's a tougher question because that's almost just repackaging the same question of, when does consciousness begin and where does it end in just a different manner? Right, exactly. But that's the point is because um, that question for me, I guess, kind of elucidated, like, why do we draw a line anywhere? I feel like we have no good evidence to suggest where that line begins or stops. So why say it's an emergent phenomena and like, okay, it occurs at this point, Right but we have no good indication as to why it should start at that point. Yeah, for well, me, I think, uh, if I may, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the question itself, I think I have a, not that I have a problem with it, but I think it's maybe not the right question that I would ask. Again, for kind of a similar reason that you said, Joe, like um, when you put it in terms of, you know, at what level you're creating a category, you know, at this level, this is going to be conscious level A or something. But I, I see it, and I think the argument of a lot of people is more that it's a gradient. So there really is no cutoff, at least in my point of view. It's just a gradient of consciousness as opposed to, well, this is now not conscious. Yeah, I think the analogy so, can be – oh, sorry, go ahead, Irene. No, I was just going to ask, um, so is there a point where consciousness equals zero, like the end of that spectrum, and where it would the end of that spectrum be? That's a good question. I think that's a philosophical question. I don't know if that's, you know, can be answered um, physiologically or biologically or something, um, in my opinion. Yeah, because, you know, you still have to choose, well, what is zero and I guess nothing. I don't, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that, but, but I think it's a good question to, to ask, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess part of this is trying to, a bit, the mystery is where do you even define that, right, um, ending point? So I guess that's what we're even trying to flesh out and just people in general try to figure out. And like you said, I don't, I don't have an answer and I don't know how easy or I think it's very difficult to even try to get to that answer. But go ahead, Terrence. I was going to say my, my kind of intuition with like borders, let's say we, we deal with, we deal with boundaries in physics all the time. Right. I mean, literally boundary conditions is everything in physics. And I would have the suspicion that um, my intuition is that the borders between conscious and non-conscious is very similar to our borders between like classical and quantum mechanics. Right. We literally have physics like in the semi-classical region, we'll say, but there is no hard number for, when that bound where that boundary actually is it's not like saying like oh it's seven for this and you know six for quantum and seven for classical um the boundaries are much more gray and i think it really depends a lot of times also on the system itself um i just don't know i don't know how well we're equipped to answer that um well, if it even is possible 
to, but to I play. imagine if we do answer it, it'll be very similar in the vein to if we're able to answer the boundary between classical and quantum mechanics. Yeah, well, to play with your analogy, I mean, we do understand the limits of those, though, right? Like in quantum mechanics, we know that, okay, say you have two particles, right? You're probably in a quantum system. If you have right. an Avogadro's number of uh, particles, you're in the classical system, right? Yes, so, but how many particles until what's the number of particles you have? What's the minimum number of particles you need to have? until you are quantum right no I, under, I understand your question i understand your point i'm saying that like i can definitively separate quantum mechanics and classical mechanics and i might not have an exact number for you but there is definitely a distinction but between the two regimes right i'm mm -hmm. saying in this case i don't see that distinction when it comes to consciousness i mean i know that the science isn't as developed right but i would like i would not consider a rock conscious i think that's a hard limit um i think that's one of those similar situations where i would consider the rock to be in like let's say for your analogy like the quantum realm you know you say the quantum particles you know if we have two particles in a system it's definitely a quantum system right i think the i think the rock is analogous to that where a rock is a non-conscious being and then the human would be conscious, but it's much harder to define it when you're looking at those in between areas. Right. But oh, well, guess, for me, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, can I go? Sorry, I might forget. I was just going to say that um, for me, why Darren's like, I want a more uh, concrete, like physical reason. What is the physical reason that what is the makeup of the rock to you in your eyes that dif differentiates it from whatever you would call conscious like physically what's the difference there well it's again i think i can maybe hark back to what i was saying um initially when we started the podcast with the whole choice thing i think there's a there's a fundamental thing going on with conscious beings where they're having some kind of decision making process whether that's actually real decisions or not that's not really um relevant it's um there's, there's, a, there's a certain kind of decision-making going on. I would, I, I would even venture to say that plants are not conscious because um, I'm using consciousness in a very um, particular way. I mean, I think plants are more conscious than rocks, let's say, but I would still not consider them to be conscious, um, you know, for all intents and purposes. But yeah, I, I guess just it's just there are certain properties of consciousness. I don't have them all defined right now, but I guess the main one would be that there's some kind of decision making going on with conscious beings, whereas something like a rock or a, a flower is not making decisions. Okay, well, I guess I mean I'm I'm talking more like even physical, like let's say the physical level, the rock is made up of atoms, right, mm -hmm. um, and molecules. Like if you have an organic some organic material that's inanimate. It can be made out of molecules um, that are put together in some orientation. Well, our, a neuron or our brain, you know, it's also has molecules within it, but is it, does the difference between the two, the, the way that they're oriented with each other? The way that those molecules are oriented? Yes. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's the complexity of the system. Humans are more complex than rocks. Therefore, that complexity, emer it, the emergent part of that is consciousness. That's the whole 
that's pretty much the whole thing, right? The emergence is a result of complexity. When you have a complex system, that's why we have this illusion of some kind of profound consciousness. A rock is just very simple. A lot of structure of a rock can be pretty much written down on one line on a piece of paper, right? Super easy to write down. Trying to actually write down the makeup of humans is much harder. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just want, want a question. Like, how can you say that consciousness is an illusion, <laughs> right? It's like, uh, I thought we agreed on a previous podcast that like the, like I agree with Descartes in the sense that the only thing we can know is that we are conscious, right? You're experiencing something for sure, right? When I the, say illusion, maybe that's the wrong word, Joe. I mean, like, um, I, I'm saying consciousness is an illusion in the sense that you know how you guys were saying that basically we don't have free will. I think I tend to agree with that. So it's like the whole the whole criteria I have with consciousness is there's a, there's a decision-making distinction. So we have the illusion of choice or illusion of making decisions. So consciousness makes us feel like we have some kind of, you know, um, separate control in the universe where we may not really have as much control as we actually do. So maybe illusion was a bad word in that, sh in that sense, but I mean, um, just, I don't know. So the, the illusion is the choice making. Yeah. 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 But there's still a, there's still like a pseudo, a pseudo choice making um, decision possible there, right? Yeah. Like we feel like it's real, so we can we can call it an actual choice. Okay, but even if reality may not agree. Okay. Um. Anyways, there, there's a lot to hash out here. Does anyone have anything else to chime in here? I'll. Just encourage uh, Ed or Ricky to jump in if they have anything to say. I guess I was just thinking about uh, Terrence's kind of uh, example about a rock is not considered conscious, right? Because it's not complex. But I would I would think that a rock's a rock is just as complex, right? If you just look at the number of atoms that would compose it, the crystalline structure you have in a sense, you know, the atoms that are inside the rock are aware of the other atoms through the, you know, the, the bonding, the whatever type ionic bonding if it's, or covalent, you know, whatever the bond is. That in a sense, the electrons are aware of each other, right? And through quantum mechanics, you can't have, each electron is in a unique energy state spin because they can't, have the same one so in a sense i would think if if we're you know going to the pan psychism where it's like interaction energy these these are the fundamental uh units of consciousness right the matter and the forces that are involved in keeping a rock a rock would in a sense make it conscious in the sense that each atom in the rock is aware of the other atoms in the crystalline structure to, to keep its shape, you know, and the matter and the energy inside of it would be a form of, form of consciousness, not our form of consciousness, right? We formulate thoughts and reasoning a rock, as far as I know, doesn't do that, but its parts are aware of its other parts in the sense that the forces are being interacted between them. 
See, that's where that's where I have the problem with we need to actually be distinguishing between what conscious what's useful to call conscious and what's not useful to call conscious. Well, mm-hmm. I think I agree with what you're saying. We need to actually reserve the word conscious for particularly meaning a right where, where an organism or where some kind of entity comprising of some kind of material particles or whatever is actually manifesting this ability to make decisions. And yeah. I agree with you again that a rock is probably just as complex as a human in terms of its maybe molecular makeup. But what I also mean by that is to clarify again there or to clarify for that is um, the arrangement of those molecules. So looking at the base unit of, or I don't know if I'll say the base unit, but looking at a fundamental or a unit of the human brain being the neuron, the neuron itself is already more complicated than anything else in the rock. And then if you keep upping that more and more uh, levels, then the complexity, the level of complexity all the way down is much deeper than a rock. A rock, yes, is very complex for humans, but I think the complexity of a human is more so than a rock by some non-negligible amount. Yeah, so I, it is, I, I 100% agree, you know, we're, we're, it's like semantics, you know, the most basic inf- uh, type of definition or an operational definition that you apply to you yes. know it's a, a meaningful type of system yeah i, I completely understand that there, there's a distinction between them you know i think right now we're splitting hairs and trying to you know put a, a an umbrella term but you know that's where the into the uh you know meaningful discussion is that how far does that do we extend that umbrella and what's the operational definition that we need in our everyday sense yeah, well, actually, well, I want to say, because this perfectly leads into this idea I was talking about earlier, and actually, Ed, oh, sorry, you can go if you have to say something first. It's okay, I was just going to set it up for you, but it doesn't matter. Oh, go ahead, set it up. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say, go ahead. <laughs> Awkward times on the podcast right now, but sorry, I just get a little bit, you know, excited. Sometimes I forget what I'm going to say, so I don't say it right away, and I may forget now. Um, but anyway, um, so just along what Ed, you were saying, um, that is kind of along the lines of something I was going to propose too, um, in terms of a definition for consciousness. And as Terrence said, yeah, like we have to have like some operate, maybe some operational definition and cut it off at some point. But then even going back to what Ricky said about the spectrum of consciousness, I could conceive, um, kind of like a framework where a rock would be among that spectrum of consciousness in the way that Ed is saying. So if like you imagine um, at the fundamental level, you have these particles and that they can interact and they'll be at some um, scale, they will, they will come together to create, let's say the quarks. And at that point, they're bound with each other as a system. And so when you go from one scale, let's say to the next scale, now they're bound as a system maybe there is some emergent property that you could say is consciousness um, at a very basic level that's really low on that spectrum. And then when you go from the quarks, now they bind together um, and they make, you know, uh, the particles like protons and so on. Then maybe there's another emergent consciousness or something. And then you keep going up and up those levels 
um, from scale to scale, and maybe these different types of consciousness could be manifested. Um, and yeah, I think it has to do with how you want to define this, but I guess um, I, I lean towards more if I see some kind of pattern or maybe if you could see some mathematical pattern in the way that these things bind together um, to get to the next level, then I would say that it would make sense to give one term that is consistent with that type of mathematical pattern, even though they're not the same type of thing, because we know there's different forces that are interact that cause those binding from scale to scale. There are different types of forces, but maybe there is some emergent similar mathematical relation that comes out of that type of bonding overall. So um, I don't know. Um, and then, but then the thing that you're saying, Terrence, then that I was thinking about the neuron and what it's made up of. Um, and it is a lot of different types of molecules that it's made up of instead of like a rock that just has usually maybe one type of molecule created in this crystalline structure. Whereas a neuron, let's say, even if it had just three, but rearranged in a more complex structure, um, I don't know how they're both, in my mind, they're both in similar planes of scale, but then there's there's something different going on with the two, right? In terms of how they bound together. So maybe they're not even in the same scale. Right? I don't know what you guys think about that. I mean, there are different types of bonds, right? That you'd see for the neuron with the different pieces, with the different molecules versus the bond, the bonds that you see for like a rock. So I don't know. So that was kind of, I wanted to see what you guys felt about in terms of that definition for, for consciousness. Yeah, I don't think the two have to be sort of mutually exclusive. I do think, like, I agree with you. I do think there could be like a level where um, on the scale, you know, it's kind of categorized. And at certain levels, maybe um, has to do with the interactions between the molecules or something. Like, um, you know, in a neuron, if you want to go with this information processing theory, maybe like different parts of the neuron can process and send information to each other and, and more complex types of information than could the different parts of a rock. And maybe that is what determines the scale or something. Um, dang, I wish I would have answered sooner because I you said a lot of interesting things, Irene. And I can't remember what I was going to say, but I know it was really good. <laughs> but, um, when that happens. Yeah. But I guess one thing is you did, you mentioned the complexity. Yes. So the complexity, it's not also, I wanted to touch on one point. Yeah. I kind of remember a little bit, not all of it though, but um, you mentioned that, yeah, there's the molecules. It's, it's like the complexity of the molecules is something, but also, it's the complexity of the configuration of those molecules that's more complicated. That's really the key, I think. And that's where I think the emergent part is really critical is that for me, the emergence happens when it's the complexity of the arrangement of the molecules specifically, not necessarily that the complexity of the molecule itself. Um, oh, and okay. Yeah. And um, oh, shit, just left me again. Um, hold on. Uh, Christ, I need to really stop smoking marijuana. 
<laughs> I can't remember what I was going to say now. Uh, if I may step step in, because um, you mentioned something, and I think this emergent phenomenon might not have been so random as i would say or maybe it's beginnings was random but then um what about evolution having a hand in this right the this organ that we call the brain is found in many many animals in some form right it's either a ganglion if it's like a small tiny brain or it's a full-blown you know brain but evolution i think has had this guiding hand towards leading of to this what we call consciousness right because you would think the very first life forms right if you start like that that's one of the big unknown questions right how did life begin you know some theories are like oh there's a there was a bubble of oil that formed and then so some chemicals came in there and they spontaneously formed into rna and that became you know, a self-replicating molecule. And then billions of years, you have the first bacteria. And then this, you know, evolution would form, will kind of guide it in a way that this will branch off to more complex organisms, right? Evolution is, is the mechanism that would describe this continual kind of progress in a sense, but it is still random, right? Just because you're the biggest, baddest, you know, mofo in the, in the Sahara in, in, or the Serengeti or whatever your, your environment is, does not necessarily mean that you're going to be the, the creature that lives, right? It's whatever is able to adapt. And that adaptation, I think, has led a sort of, I think, an eventual progress to where we are now, right? There, at some point, the fact that a, having a large brain was advantageous I think kind of nature in a way through random processes kind of led us to where we are right now. The, 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 what emerged out of this random process is humans and our brain and our consciousness. So I think, yeah. I think, you know, random events as you know, given enough time will lead to something like this, I think. Yeah. So um, I just want, I feel like this brings us back to a question that I think uh, half the party didn't answer, right? Is um, like, what is the purpose of consciousness? Like, do you need it? Right? Like, if it's a product of evolution, right? Um, that kind of implies that there's something beneficial to our survival about it, right? Um, but my sense, I don't think I answered it either, but my sense is that consciousness isn't necessary for survival, right? I could imagine being a philosophical zombie, right? I could imagine being a robot and having the lights turned off and surviving perfectly fine without this awareness of this experience. So it's very possible. I mean, it's definitely true that like consciousness is a product of evolution, right? At, at, it's at least related to it, right? Like I have, I feel like I'm, personally, I feel like I'm conscious, right? So, um, but was it 
a requirement of evolution? I don't know. Well, no, I mean, bacteria, as far as we know, don't have our, you know, level of consciousness, but they've been around on the planet for a hell of a lot longer than, than us. So consciousness is like, because like evolution doesn't mean the fit, the survival of the strongest, right. Or the fit like, it's, can you adapt and can you pass your, can you, produce long enough to survive whatever changes come in you know that's ultimately the you know you gotta you gotta fuck you gotta fuck long enough that your create your your progeny survives whatever bad things happening at the moment we almost became extinct right like 70 something thousand years ago the there was a bottleneck and modern humans almost went the way of the of the dinosaur so random pro like the universe is pretty much ruled by random processes and you know we could thank our our lucky stars or whatever you know whatever higher power you think but i think uh if we if we apply the principles of evolution and just the fact that evolution is kind of just like a guiding hand a forward push of progress of things right a forward an arrow of time that allows an, a system to to evolve from one state to the next, I think uh, the fact that we have a large brain and we're here at this moment is a consequence of that, but it's not, it's not the sole consequence of, of evolution. It's a part of it. It's a facet, a small facet of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, agree. yeah, I mean, I agree with you guys, again, what Taryn said earlier too, like, that's just, I don't see it as a purpose really. I just see it as a consequence. Um, and with the zombie example, you don't, you don't have, like we talked about before, I don't think you need to have awareness of, of, the, of that consciousness in the, in the future of consciousness in the past for you to be conscious. So I think you can have conscious in the, be, have, be conscious in each present moment, but not be able to reflect back on having that consciousness. So in that regard, that zombie could be that, right? Like I would think of like a sleepwalker, you know, some people cook or maybe drive a car or walk around and they don't have any memory of doing this um but they had to have been conscious at some level to be able to have performed these things right um so i feel like in the zombie situation um how can you even tell whether whether maybe consciousness just is there right um but the zombie has no awareness of it or i mean I guess that's the point. Is that the point of the zombie? The zombie, um, just to show I, that you can't really know ever if it's conscious or not conscious. I, I think if a zombie was real, it would it would have a huge, huge legal like quandary to, for people because right, one of the things that uh, they try to establish in in criminal law is intent, you know, the, the desire and like were you conscious were you physically there you know that's the difference between first degree murder right you want it and you intend it and you carried it out versus manslaughter which was accidental right completely different sort of uh punishments for for that conscious event right there now a zombie who's you know just exists but doesn't have like if they commit something like how can we apply our human our 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 you know, reasonable laws to something that 
does not reason. Yeah. Well, I mean, this ethical quandary I've already dealt with when I did away with free will. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. It's like I had, to, I had to think through this and, uh, yeah try to rationalize through those ethical implications right because i don't believe any of us have free will right so um the way i just justify that ethically is kind of what terence is saying about consciousness here is like i have like an operational definition right like free will i don't believe we have free will but legally it's useful to think to pretend as if it does exist for a lot of um for a lot of those purposes um but it does also give me more compassion for those who commit crimes and leads me to think that we should trans transform the restorative justice system uh, because of that but so just to make them <laughs> sorry so just to make the math work you assume that we have free will like like the the, the letter i in the imaginary like just to make math work we're gonna have this imaginary symbol and that's gonna allow us to explore you know complex analysis and a bunch of other stuff that we wouldn't be able to yeah well i mean people still have like intentions and you could still learn and grow as a person and not have free will so it's not necessarily like unreconcilable but um just for like con (laughs) for conversing about this it's just a lot simpler and i think achieves basically the same thing by just tossing in that eye so I wanted to um, comment real quick, Joe, because I think that's a really question. It's a really interesting question that you asked about, um, do we need consciousness? And I think most of us would probably agree that we really, the universe doesn't need consciousness. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the universe would be perfectly content if it was just a bag of protons and photons and, you know, electrons just swimming in a sea of darkness. And it'd probably be a lot better because it would make more sense than any of this, right? So I think we don't need consciousness really, but I think there's an interesting property of the universe that for some reason, whatever it is, the universe loves to, it loves emergence. It seems, you know, from just looking at planets and galaxies and all this stuff, we constantly are seeing emergent things. And just to even reinforce my whole emergence thing, once again, it's just the fact that um, humans are an emergent thing as well. I think that just is even more proof that um, consciousness is some kind of emergent phenomenon because humans don't need to exist. Why do we need to be alive? Why does there even need to be something that questions itself and makes decisions? It doesn't. I think it's just in the math of the universe. Whatever it is that spawned any of this stuff to make these kind of allowable decisions to happen. Um, I think it's just something happened along the lines where the universe manifested some object to make these kind of particular moves to where it started to want to preserve itself as a more and more complex entity um, over time, whatever that time scale would be. And yeah, I think it just, there's no, there's no need to be conscious. We just simply form that consciousness because of the complexity. It helped us to survive. It helped the universe to retain this complex entity being humans in this case. And it just makes the universe more complex and interesting. It's just what the universe does. It likes to be this really infinitely complex thing. 
And that might be just what it has to be for the universe to exist. I think the universe just continually wants to make these complex objects. And, you know, if even if I had to, expe- I had to speculate, you know, maybe the fact that we exist creates the next chain for some other complex thing to occur. You know, it's just, I don't know. Of course, now we're getting real metaphysical here, but. <laughs> well, but yeah. Think about this. Why does there even matter? Why isn't the universe just filled with radiation? From the right. moment of creation, antimatter matter should have been created in equal amounts. It should have annihilated each other. It should be a vast, empty, you know, bath of microwaves. But we have matter, right? Because there was a anti-symmetry. There was something. Something had to just say no. I'm gonna not gonna do that, you know. But that's besides the point. But the thing that uh, kind of the question was like. You know, you're saying that universe will exist whether or not we're aware of it, right? It's independent. In the universe, the states are independent of human observation and consequence. That's perfectly valid. It's like the question, you know, if a tree fell in the woods and no one heard it, did it fall? Like, well, yes, because the tree falling is not a consequence of our observation, you know? So the universe doesn't need people, 100%. You know, we just happen to exist at a, at a time and place with these abilities to, you know, describe our environment. But it's like Feynman said, we're, we're a group of atoms trying to understand itself. And I think that right there is, is if, you, if you just look at it there, like, and you still have a little bit of mystery, I don't think that takes away from our experience or our desire to learn and our pursuits, like, it's good to have a little bit of mystery, you know, it, I, I, I don't see it as a problem, but I think we're lucky that uh, we, we're, you know, the distance we are from the sun and the distance away from the Milky Way center and, you know, relatively quiet. Like you could think maybe there's an anthropological uh, factor to that. Like is the, was the universe created for life to appear or did it just through random processes evolve to a state where things are relatively stable and quiet that you can allow complex life and you know chemicals to arrange itself to give rise to to life i think you know no better time to exist than right now all right well so um, we touched a lot of topics here um so I think it makes sense given the flow of the conversation to go to the last chapter, um, which is about consciousness and time. And so I have a feeling, I mean, I could just tackle this, but you know, I have a feeling with four physicists in the, in the call, uh, we might all reach similar conclusions, but uh, basically uh, they, Uh, talk about the difference between uh, presentism and eternalism, right? Different views on what exactly is, um, how does time actually work, I guess, in the universe. So presentism states that uh, time is in fact flowing and only the present moment is real, quote, right? And then eternalism is that we live in a block universe, meaning that like, 
all of time exists simultaneously right um so like i said i could tackle this but i'd rather just let you guys <laughs> give your two cents on what you think of these two i have i have a question for everybody because i think this will kind of put you towards whether or not you believe that we live in this big block of time or it's moment by moment do you believe in uh, higher dimensions? Uh, what do you mean? Higher than what? Well, we're, we are in, in space time, right? That's 4D. What mm-hmm. about fifth dimensional? Like, like, do you, like if, do, would you think that there, are, there exists a possibility of higher dimensions in the sense that, you know, there could be a, a, a dimension of time that's like our xyz where you can travel from past to present like you would going up or down the stairs right and in that case if we allow for an extra dimension in that then the past and the present and the future exist simultaneously they're just separated by a dimension so i would think that would be like the block of time right you we're we're stuck in one point but there's nothing that kind of other than the fact that we can't travel to another dimension that we can't just travel to a future point of ourselves and see our death or go to the past and see our, our, our birth. If you allow for, for extra dimensions. And it doesn't mean that the extra dimensions uh, have to be time-like. It could be something completely different that we have no physical explanation for. But if, if there are more dimensions, one can reason that, there must be other time-like ones that will allow this. Yeah, I think it's possible for sure. Yeah, I definitely agree that um, the higher dimensional model of our existence is attractive to me. This is pretty outside of my expertise, but (laughs) I'm picturing maybe something like uh, Interstellar, if you guys have seen it. I'm, I'm guessing you mean something like that, like some kind of physical plane yeah. of existence where we can travel through time physically yeah. or something okay yeah they're, they're test rack they just turned you know a physical a time line into a physical form that you can travel like you would normal space and right. i'm a little you know, familiar with with the actually it's one of my favorite movies so uh i, I kind of understand what you're saying and yeah i don't know so, i don't know the details but i would i would say um i've seen some of like uh, like carl sagan when he talks about it's like that famous video where he talks about the 2d creatures and then mm-hmm. 3d land and 4d land and all that. Um, I think it's an interesting question. And uh, I mean, I, I don't know enough about it, but I don't see a reason to not believe in that. Yeah. Yeah. The Tesseract is the block, right? Cause you, right. it's, it's a, a thing, but the problem with that is that you have to be outside of that. Right. If you're stuck, it's like, if you're in the movie, you can't see the movie in its entirety because you're in it frame by frame. You have to be an outside observer to then see the full movie as it's playing. And just like a movie, you can, re- you can fast forward, you can rewind, you can pause. You know, you have this extra control over this timeline that is not afforded to those who are in the timeline. Right. Sort of like in like a comic book or something. Yeah. We can flip through the pages and go to any point in time, but the characters mm-hmm. themselves are stuck in whatever pages they're in. Yeah, and they, and they could only... Exp- move or experience it moment by moment you know as they're inching along their little timeline but 
us, you know, us higher really, dimensional beings to them. Yeah. Right. So gotcha. to me, when I read, when I saw that question and it was like, I kind of wasn't in the frame by frame type. I was thinking more like eternalism. Like, yeah, <laughs> we're, we have this block that has a beginning and end. We just can't access that because we're in the block. We're inside the system. We have to be an outside observer. And again, I think that's like the fifth time I mentioned that <laughs> in this, this podcast. Yeah, this is kind of tough to me now because I'm thinking about general relativity or special relativity mm -hmm. um, and how we can have like simultaneous events or space-like space and time-like events. And it always takes me a, a, a bit to switch my brain into relativity mode. Mm -hmm. And I'm having, a, I'm having trouble even igniting my fucking, you know, my, my igniter is not working right now for my, for my brain to switch <laughs> onto that mode. <laughs> so I'm kind of, I, I guess I'll speak stuck in my classical realm right now. Um, but right now, of course, I would naturally like to assume that time is just kind of a um, made up concept. Um, of course, this is really a big giant asterisk on this because I already know from relativity that time and space are linked. This is why I'm scared to even speak a little bit because I want to make sure my relativity brain is on, but I'll just continue anyway. Um, but, but we naturally would think of time as just the change in, or just change, I guess. It's a metric of change. So time really doesn't exist for us if nothing's changing. Um, naturally, we can think that, you know, if a system is completely static, how would you ever, how would you ever be able to measure the distinction between time A and time B, right? Mm -hmm. So that would lead me to, of course, believe that time is, um, is not simultaneous. Time is a moment-by-moment -moment process. Um, and it's simply just a, it's a pseudo-dimension, which is why people characterize time you know, distinctly from the spatial dimensions. And it's like a pseudo dimension because it's only, it's only um, characterizing a change, simply just a change. Um, <clears throat> but then, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm a little bit hesitant to say that with any confidence because I need to make sure my relativity mind is switched on first. Right. So, so I'll share what I thought of it. Um, I already felt like this is kind of like a closed case. I, I already thought this was settled. Um, I thought what we know of physics can confirm eternalism, right? And it, it's gonna, the explanation gets pretty technical, um, but I guess I want to do it anyways, just to see whether you guys, it makes sense and whether you guys agree. Um, but so. <laughs> yeah yeah i'll try i'll try to do my best to make it you can always draw a picture um on on zoom you know <laughs> yeah but we only upload the audio here right? so i know only in for two us here just but, <laughs> but uh, your, your paper and your pencil put it through the <laughs> hole <laughs> <laughs> right i'm gonna do that actually i'm gonna take you up on that offer <laughs> right what so, have you wrath upon us <laughs> all right ready for relativity 101 people so uh, i'm not ready all right i'm ready <laughs> sorry i was not anticipating doing this um but so I'm the frozen, by the way okay oh, there we go i see okay. i see so the
the picture they use in the book, um, they analogize space to two dimensions, right? So um, you have a sheet of space. Jesus. Let me, <laughs> let me draw like this, right? And then they had a little baby that was crawling. I'm going to butcher it, stick, stick, you know, baby, and then adult. You're in the present moment, and then old man, you know, here. <laughs> You like this drawing? All right. Pretty so, accurate. Damn. So you can imagine. Chiropractor. So <laughs> you can imagine time flows along in one direction, right? So it's basically we exist in the sheet, right? That's the present moment where you say space is only two dimensions. You exist somewhere in that space and the sheet evolves in time, right? As it evolves in time, you just get that sheet propagates forward, right? And um, eventually it's going to draw out the block, right? The block universe, right? And then the block universe is just basically saying that rather than a sheet, the whole existence of time and space um, exists simultaneously, right? So you have the baby, the adult, and the um, senior existing all simultaneously. Um, so what we know from relativity is just basically that, uh, time and space are linked, right? And like Terrence was saying, they're not orthogonal <laughs> per se. So that's technical definition. What that means is we know from special relativity that the faster you travel, uh, the shorter the time you experience, right? That's called time dilation, right? They also have length contraction which works the other way, right? It shows that space contracts. So these are the Lorentz contractions. Um, but the effect of this is like normally in Euclidean or classical space, they'll represent like you have a T-axis and an X-axis and they're 90 degrees. That's in a classical world. But in a special relativity world, the T-axis and the X-axis can be, you know, tilted yeah, well, in, in some way. A light cone. Exactly, right. So if you're traveling at the speed of light, um, the axes will be tilted by like 45 degrees rather than 90. Uh -huh. And so in effect, what this does is this causes a tilt in the sheet, right, up here, right? It causes a tilt in the sheet for like whatever you're experiencing, depending on your velocity, right? And so because of this tilt, it's going to cause... Um, your present moment, if you like drew a bunch of other people up here, other observers, like you were saying, uh, Ed, you drew other observers. <laughs> Strong is hilarious. All right. Um, <laughs> if you drew a bunch of other observers, right, and then you have this tilted sheet, um, suddenly your present is going to intersect with other people's pasts and futures, right? Because <laughs> in presentism, we all agree on the present. Whereas in special relativity, suddenly, you know, someone else's future is my present and it's also someone else's past, right? And mm -hmm. so if you allow, if you accept the fact that there's other observers in the universe, you can uniquely define the block universe, right? You have enough tilted sheets to map out this whole space in this block, right? 
So anyways, uh, how, how does that do? <laughs> does that make any sense? Yeah, I'm following. <laughs> I thought I remembered yeah. relatively, but now I have to like really recall why this makes sense. <laughs> it made sense to me uh, like intuitively, but uh, maybe I don't well, have the math. That's the whole point of uh, special relativity, right? It's it's all dependent on the observer. Yeah. And each observation point leads to a different truth. So there is no universal truth. Right. You know, what really, you know, blew my mind is that uh, you mentioned, you know, the, the lens, the Lorentz transformations, right? You have time dilation and length contraction. Well, you, those are, they have an asymptote, right? When V equals to C. Yeah. You know, one blows up to infinity and the other one goes to zero. So think about a photon that's emitted at the, at the other side of the universe, right? It's traveling at the speed of light. That means for a photon that is emitted from a quasar 10 billion light years away, its distance has contracted to zero from the photon's point of view. And the time is zero. So it's instantaneous. But from our point of view, because we're, out, we're a different reference frame, it took 10 billion years to get here. Right. And to me, that blows my mind that a photon does not experience time or length. Right. It exists for an instant from the moment of creation to the moment that is absorbed in your eyeball. Yeah, exactly. So the question is, if we're going to say only the present time is real, you have to specify whose present time are you talking about, right? Like, because mm -hmm. um, I, I think I'm convinced. Yeah. So like, if you're talking about, you know, a photon's present time, then suddenly, you know, you'll have a very different picture of what the present is than, uh, you know, my, our present time. So this... Yeah. This leads us to kind of, I think, affirm eternalism. Maybe there's yeah. something I'm missing. Um, the great government cheese block of time. <laughs> yeah, the, exactly. The cheese <laughs> block of time. But so, yeah, of course, there might be something I'm neglecting. But just when I read the book, you know, I thought and what I know of relativity, I thought it was a closed case. No, I but, think you're right. For me, it was only open because I couldn't remember. You know, I always have to constantly rederive shit, and I can't remember fast enough if it was if it was true or not. <laughs> no, that, that's okay. Of course, I mean, I took a few minutes to think out like how it makes sense and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So on, on the spot, it's different for sure. Yeah, I think I'm convinced. But well, Ed gave me a whole new viewpoint on on the photon. So <laughs> I didn't. I don't know why I never thought about that. The viewpoint of the photon, but yeah. Yeah. It's 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 amazing. So thank you. I've heard some contention with that though. With Ed, with your photon analogy, mm -hmm. um, because I think people were saying um, rel that uh, special or yeah, special relativity cannot be seen in that way because um, a photon actually does not even fit within the regime of special relativity because you can't actually know what happens to an object when it travels at the speed of light or something yeah because of that that asymptote right, but if, right. You, if you take it to the 
kind of like it's a reasonable conclusion as yeah. V approaches C, then either time stops or the distance contracts to zero, you know, which is probably physically un unreasonable. But, you know, and if we just take things to its, its logical conclusion, whether or not it's provable, yeah. like that would be the conclusion that we can draw. Yeah. You know, there's another another thing that kind of uh, we, I guess, I don't know if we talked about it, but we probably did when we were talking about forces, you know, um, you know, there, as you guys know, there are two forces that are, it's ranges infinity, right? Electromagnetic and gravitational. Yeah. So if we, if we take that kind of reasoning that those two forces are infinite in range, then you can think of the interaction, which will not be instantaneous, but given enough time, one side of the universe can affect the other side. And in that sense, we have a interaction between two things. And we can think of that as that wave of information is propagating then you know, not only are those two points connected, but everything else within that, you know, bubble is connected. Yeah. So um, one thing that I was just thinking about is that, you know, this, as, you, as you're saying, time is just a necessary, like you have to have a reference point, right? Point A and point B and see the changes for you to say time pass. If not, you can't say for certain that, you know, if you're just observing a static environment that any time has passed, right? Because you, you don't have that uh, kind of physical kind of reminder, you know, decay, deterioration, cracks, or some, some form of change. Um, but then that also kind of brings in the, the, uh, the thing that Einstein proved was all of GR is that gravity isn't even unique because if you're in an elevator and you're, and you're accelerating, you're going to feel gravity. So gravity isn't necessarily a force. It's a consequence of, as you said, curvature now. So now we're thinking, you know, is, that, is, is this interaction even real to say that, you know, are, like, is there even a force carrier now? I think that was one of the major things they're trying to figure out is that does gravity have an actual carrier particle? Because then either GR is right or standard model is right. Because right now there's, they're, they're competing two different things, right? GR says gravity isn't a particle or a resultant of a particle is just curvature caused by mass and energy. Standard part, the standard model would say, no, um, Gravity is a force, therefore there's a particle mediating that force, so we, we just need to discover it. So I think that's like something that, that needs to be kind of explored and said, like which one's right? You know, is so far Einstein GR has been proven right and standard model has been proven right. And I just think it's an interesting kind of, you know, kind of like disconnect right there where Yes, I think, you know, if, if gra like gravity affects everything, right? It's attractive, things are going to come towards it. 
but why hasn't the universe contracted then right if you're if you're if you're thinking about what the logical outcome is and i think that's one of the things like what's the eventual uh end of the universe is it expansion or is it a big crunch i just think it's interesting that yeah. that's something that we haven't even like figured out or yeah. are pretty much not in consensus to just plug veritasium here right i don't know if you watched the video and that's why you're talking about it but no i, uh, I haven't seen it Ver- veritasium just posted a video i think a couple of days ago uh re- very recently saying that gravity is not a force right and talking about gr and stuff like that and the implications and stuff but very similar to what you're talking about now right so then i will have to watch that video to see right. what what i he has to put down so it's, I just think it's interesting, even if it's a little tangent from consciousness, it's still, you know, gravity is an emergent phenomenon from a collection of mass, right? Whether it's a particle or a, a uh, or, or just a manifestation of curvature, if consciousness is an emergent process from just a collection of matter, you know, is how is that how is that different than gravity that is an emergent phenomenon from a collection of matter as well you know and both things are in discussion you know we we're not we're not in a precise consensus of what gravity truly is and we're not in a consensus truly what consciousness is we just know that it arises from a collection of something now i got to jump in there i don't think that's a good distinction because we already know that consciousness is not something that arises just as a collection of matter. It's actually doesn't because if that were the case, then, well, I guess maybe for your guys' definition, it might be, but for that case, we could, we would consider a rock conscious where I don't. So I think it isn't a um, consequence of a collection of matter. It's distinct in the sense that it's a collection of, it's a, it's only arises from the complexity of how matters arranged. It's the arrangement of matter that matters. So, yeah, I don't I don't think it is the same with as gravity in that sense. Because if it was, and I think it would be more motivating to use the whole you know panpsychism um, framework for that if that was the case. But I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm seeing it from a panpsychism kind of because I think those if if I look at it in that lens, that emergent phenomenon arises from the and what are we other than just a collection of matter you know yeah what about what about beings energy beings you know they can have some form of consciousness if if we allow for that in our physical universe you know as far as i know there's no gaseous well, I beings would use, or, i would use maybe the thought experiment that we know that as matter becomes heavier and heavier right mm-hmm with gravity, there are clear, there are definitely clear things that happen. Like when a mass gets bigger and bigger, you see it pulling on smaller objects. You see it form into like nebula and black holes or whatever the hell, all those celestial bodies. As mass gets bigger, um, as mass gets bigger, nothing changes with consciousness. It's like the number of the number of particles you have don't make a nebula a supreme conscious entity 
right? It's like, um, we're not seeing anything. We're not seeing any more emergent phenomena happen as the particle number increases um, in terms of consciousness. We do see it with gravity, but we're not seeing that at all with consciousness. It's just, it's, it's actually the complexity of the creature that changes the manifestation of consciousness. So it's the same assumption, but just work backwards right there. It's if, if you assume panpsychism isn't true, then yeah. But if it is true, then, uh, you know, whether you call it a rock or whether you call it a nebula, it's the same problem, right? How is that? I'm losing the thread. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm saying that, I mean, I'm just saying, I'm just saying this like uh, uh, the more particles you have, we can keep adding on. Like, imagine like if you're just straight up like you know adding on mass to like a ball of Play-Doh, and you just keep adding on mass, more mass, more mass. You're gonna see that mass shift, and it's going to emerge as different kind of things. Like, and literally the 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 the, the, the if you add the most mass to it, it's gonna eventually collapse to a black hole. Like adding mass has a distinct um, effect gravitationally. You see the changes what that happened gravitationally. You know, you even get spherical shapes by having more gravity on something. Yes. You well, don't see. What about adding? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say, what about adding more neurons? Right. You have, let's say, a paramecium, which is a single cell organism. You know, versus a hundred billion neurons that are also unicellular we see we can see uh adding more neurons to a brain has an effect to the creature if you look yeah, at but that's, across the creatures yeah but that's still i think that's still supporting my argument you're just adding on with a, com- a complex um unit of uh, you're you're adding on with the complex unit of what makes a conscious entity matter alone isn't going to do it you know, a collection of protons isn't going to do that. It has to be the neuron. That's a complex object. So that's still adding on. It's increasing the complexity um, of the object, not the, not the. Well, I think we're just defining what the unit is. I'm saying an atom is a unit for that. So adding more mass or atoms and are the fundamental unit for our consciousness would be a neuron, yeah. which is still a unit, but. I think for me, in my sense that I, I think panpsychism is a little bit more appealing. So for me, that makes a little bit more sense, but I, I completely understand with your sense, you know, the operant, like going back to like, what is an operant definition? What is like, we need something that's concrete if we're going to start defining that. And where do you draw that line where you have an operant definition that, you know, works versus, we're now nitpicking and just saying how far do we extend the umbrella? Like I completely understand it. Yeah. And to me, like, I'm still not convinced that you can really even assess whether something is conscious by looking at some external actions or anything. So I'm not convinced yet that you can, you can say some, yeah, you can say something is conscious or not depending on some form of external actions that you're observing. So, I mean, who knows if, the the galaxy does experience some form of consciousness that we don't see. I think kind of to uh, Terrence's point, um, I think it's uh, it's more about like, the way I see it is more about the interaction of the matter. Like 
if I agree, if you have just more matter, more mass, I don't think that's going to make it inherently more conscious necessarily, or maybe like pass some kind of threshold of consciousness, but the complexity of it and the, like the ability of that matter to interact with itself in that system uh, and, you know, uh, um, transfer information and respond to that information within itself. That's kind of how I see it. I think that is what is going to be the defining feature. So maybe like a galaxy or a nebula, it doesn't have that ability to interact with itself and process information in the same way. Right, because we, a galaxy, or I guess like a nebula is very easy to understand, right? We get that it's just a collection of X particle, whatever it is, I don't know astronomy. So, but it's not, it's not complex. It's not as complex as a neuron. Like we still haven't even understood a neuron to this day. And, you know, look how advanced we are. We can, we can, we can understand a, a nebula better than we can understand a single neuron. And that just shows you the distinct, the clear distinction and complexity between those two things. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I could agree on complexity, but not agree on consciousness still. <laughs> like we can't even agree like on, you know, whether a person is conscious ever. Right. So extending that umbrella as it says to anything else like just seems like pure speculation yeah but i think it's it's still per worth the pursuit of uh you know pushing that boundary and seeing you know what that definition encompasses right but okay so i mean um I think we talked through a lot of the topics on the book. I guess I will open up the floor to just wild card questions. If you guys prepared for anything and had anything on your mind, um, I will relinquish role as modern. I have one. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about this idea that like, I guess so this emergence idea, like, um, humans for example have this certain level where all of our constituent parts come together and our consciousness emerges from that right and maybe like cats and dogs and other animals fall somewhere lower on that scale or you know left of us maybe so to speak on that spectrum do you what do you guys think about maybe what's on the right side of that spectrum like sort of like collective consciousness maybe something like artificial intelligence or something some kind of like higher level of consciousness than humans I don't know if I framed that properly. Did you? I don't know if you understand no, what I'm asking. No, that, I I think I understand it. I think it's a good question. Uh, Do you mean the, in, the, in the immediate future or? Just in general, like, like I think somebody mentioned that humans might be, I think maybe it was Ed, you said humans might be a part of the chain just, you know, of that evolution. So like kind of what's next in that evolution. Yeah, I think an AGI would definitely be something that would be considered consciousness. What is an AGI? Um, an artificial generalized intelligence. It's basically what you see in all the movies, you know, when an AI is self-aware, for instance. I think that would be the classical example of like what a higher form of consciousness can be um, that's not organic as well, which is really interesting. Um, and I think, yeah, I think uh, machines could be considered conscious once they hit a certain level of complexity. 
And that's why I'm kind of convinced of complexity being the fundamental unit here, because I think we could, you know, eventually, you know, if technology gets, gets to the level, you know, where it can actually do this, I think we could build something that has a higher level of consciousness in us just with machine components, you know, in some kind of complex, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, built in some kind of complex way. Hollywood tackles this all the time and it doesn't bode well for people. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. What do you mean? Uh, Whenever we create a, an intelligence you know, they quickly realize they're better than us and they tend to try to establish dominance. Yeah, I think it's really dumb to make something smarter than yourself or smarter than you. It's not (laughs) wise. It's very, uh, very bad idea. Yeah, Because when something's smarter than you, you don't know what its movements are. You can't predict what it's doing. Mm -hmm. It's four. It's four universes ahead of you in terms of right. decision making. Yeah, so I think we should never. In my, my personal opinion, I don't think we should ever make something smarter than us. I think it's a horrible idea, um, and I really hope it never happens because I think that'll be the day when some bad shit happens. I just, I mean, if if it doesn't, you're always um, you're vulnerable, right? You never mm-hmm. want something to be smarter than you. That's right. You got to stay, stay the top dog. <laughs> well, well, I always try to hang out with people smarter than me, but, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm tempted to say AI also, but the only thing is considering like the plasticity of the brain, like Ed was mentioning earlier, because like we could augment our senses and stuff in our, the capacity of our brain. Right. Like, uh, the fact that you could just plug in certain components and expand, you know, its capacity. Are you also expanding its consciousness? Uh, I don't know. It's um, a good question. So, yeah, it's hard for me to say. A collective consciousness example that you gave was also interesting. Um, combining... Uh, you could somehow combine the components uh, combine a bunch of different individuals together somehow um like the borg collective yeah but again it's like yeah i mean this is an interesting question right because like uh if like how would you even define like this spectrum idea right of a higher consciousness i'm not sure what that means exactly like I like maybe in in a sense I can uh, just yeah just the fact that I'm asking that question about like okay if I add these components like am I a higher consciousness being now right it makes me question whether like I can actually say I'm a higher on the consciousness scale than like a dog or something I feel like it's just like a different shape like we've been saying well, I think you could easily conceive of something higher consciousness. You imagine, um, well, not easily conceived, but you can just imagine something that has double our brain size. Why, why does that mean double the consciousness? Well, naturally it would extend to, um, we're assuming that um, things that have larger brains 
are more conscious or more sentient in some way, then doubling the brain would naturally extend to has more, has double the neurons, therefore must be doubly as intelligent. So therefore more conscious. Would it, would it be that increasing the amount of information that you can process in your, in your mind leads to a higher, a higher consciousness? For example, we're limited to the visible spectrum. What if we now we can observe microwaves, radio waves, x-rays, gamma rays, you know, the whole entire visible, uh, the entire EM spectrum? Well, we can already do that with scientific instruments. I don't know if it will help us much. That's true. Like we we do have that, but I think like like I think there's a fundamental fundamental limit to our human brain architecture, right? Because the higher consciousness means you you would have to have a, a change in the brain, in the architecture, in the way that will allow a higher, like an emer- a higher emergent function, right? I think, and I, and I just thought of this, something that would be kind of the next level up would be some sort of telepathy, right? Where you, like, like our brains are electrical objects. That means that there's, you know, we can pick up the electrical signals using a cap, like an electrodes. So we know that the brain outputs uh, electrical signals that you can pick up with other objects. You know, what, what if people evolve an organ that allows us to pick up those signals and then now we can like beam them to each other, you know, like like a, like a radar, just beam form is like, sweep across or something you know uh, a lot of sci-fi have aliens that are telepathic and they can read minds like that might just that might be a higher level consciousness that incorporates a bunch of different individuals into a single like mindset so that uh, i'm just you know speculating what that change would be but i think our current brain architecture does not allow for that you know because we can we can augment the brain in such a way that we view different you know we 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 can have instruments that can see ir x-ray that doesn't make us you know higher thinking we can put in electrodes and microchips and you know change our bodies and augment it but it's still a fundamental limit because the brain is is it needs to evolve further you know so i think maybe telepathy or some sort of, you know, interbrain communication is the next step in some way. Well, uh, yeah, I get, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I was thinking like if you treat, if we say now our human, us as a human, where you're now one unit, like a cell, like you said before, and now you congregate all these humans together or these brains together, like you said, and the congregation of those brains together would, in a way, clump through this telepathy, which then leads to this next hierarchy or something, right? Level of consciousness that you're talking about. Um, yeah, I mean, that sounds Borg interesting. You're talking about. What? You're talking about the Borg. Resistance yeah, is futile. The Borg. The Borg? <laughs> From Star Trek. Yeah. 
I don't know that. I'm sorry. They're basically a super race of people because they have exactly like what you and Ed are talking about here is they have a collective consciousness so they can all, they all know what everyone is doing at the exact same time and they share knowledge. So everyone is proficient in everything and they have a cohesive, they run cohesively to where they all have the same mission. Mm -hmm. So they are far more advanced than anything else in the galaxy. Like ants, you know, like a colony of ants, they work in unison and they all have a common goal. What I was going to say is like imagining the spectrum then if we're saying like connectedness and, you know, the ability to send information to different parts and understand different, the actions of different things in the universe, like the supreme consciousness then would be something that is somehow aware of like the position and velocity of every particle in the universe, right? Like the maximum, the maximum number of amount of information you can get, right? something like that so that would be an uh omniscient being yeah yeah to, to so make god <laughs> yeah i didn't say it i said <laughs> <laughs> so to make things weird it's funny that y'all said you know god and omniscient and all these things because uh so i, I guess jumping off that idea like if you want to subscribe to the idea that you know, your brain is perceiving consciousness. Let's, let's just go with that for a second. Um, and then, you know, if you, if people are taking psychedelics, for example, and, and you know, the people describe them as achieving a state of higher consciousness, I don't really know where that like terminology comes from, but I think about that often, you know, like what, why, why is it called a higher consciousness to be in these states? Uh, like I said, I don't know. I don't know where that comes from, but you know, you could, it, it makes me wonder like, if you can dissolve the barrier between yourself and someone else, and you're, you're both perceiving the same stimuli, the same consciousness, you know, maybe that's what that is. And, and funnily enough, people report uh, instances, instances of telepathy with other people. And, and there's even like theories about how the universe is um, itself gonna become conscious. That's kind of where it's headed, all of this evolution. So it's, it's really interesting that you guys, you know, brought up all those points because I kind of see them as well, a lot of people do sort of fringe ideas, but they're talked about a lot. You know, there's just, it's hard to measure those things, I guess, uh, empirically or scientifically. Yeah. Kind of. Um, I want to jump in here, Ricky. That was an interesting thing. You say what people will point out that taking psychedelics is a higher form of consciousness. And I don't think it is. I think it's a lateral form of consciousness, But I think people say that because we all have this innate sense of emergent phenomena being this kind of imperceivable thing until you've actually seen it. It's like almost trying to imagine a new color, right? And the thing is, when we take psychedelics or some kind of new type of drug, you're not prepared for that experience anywhere else in life. It's literally a distinct new form of consciousness that you've never experienced or are able to experience without that so it's analogous to being able to see a new color or being able to experience more generally some new kind of emergent behavior or some some kind of new emergent thing so naturally people want people will say it's a higher form of consciousness because a higher form of consciousness and a lateral form of consciousness in this sense are indistinguishable because 
either way, it's a, it's a new distinct thing. Right. So now I guess maybe also a higher part comes with it's enlightening in the sense that now that you can take that away with you into your normal everyday world of consciousness, you in some sense now are a higher conscious being because you've now experienced a new state of consciousness, whether it's higher or not, it's, it's a new state. Therefore you get to carry that around with you forever because now you've experienced a new form, which is, I mean, that's, that's, that's almost like elevating yourself to a higher form of consciousness in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. I see your point. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. I, I wonder like uh, kind of back to this analogy of like dimensions and the whole like 2d land and 3d land, like what would the experience of that 2d uh, entity be going into some kind of three dimensional uh, experience? Like would they describe it the same way, you know, some kind of higher or lateral consciousness or something? A flatlander smokes some weed and they're like, whoa, we can, I can see yeah. 3D for a moment. <laughs> exactly. And then, and then they try to explain it to their 2D homies. And I'm like, it had right. depth, man. You wouldn't get it. It had depth. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what it would say. I feel like this question is meant for Terrence. Oh, okay. Not in particular, yeah. but uh, oh, I'm sorry. Were you going to ask him, or did you mean my question? No, no, I meant I meant your question. Yeah, uh, it was meant for everyone, but uh, but I see what you're saying. Yeah, he might be best right. suited to answer. What was the question? Since you were describing consciousness uh, taking drugs as a lateral move, right? In terms of consciousness, yeah, do you think it'd be analogized to flat land to three D space? Is that the same? Would you describe it as lateral or? No, I would I would um, say Flatland 3D space is more like actually a higher form. Of course, the Flatlander, it's kind of lateral. Like, I guess you could you could probably argue both ways because a Flatlander can never cease 3D space as a 3D conscious being. Right. So I guess it would be more true to being a lateral movement because he just gets to see a new form. Uh, he gets to see a new 2D plane. Right. He gets to see his world inverted in a way that never was inverted before. But he's still operating within his 2D framework because his biology literally is in such a way that he can only perceive things in two dimensions. However mind-blowing it is, he's still only perceiving two dimensions. So I, I, a higher form would actually be to be a sphere. I think that's the guy's name. And see things in three dimensions. That's a higher form of consciousness. But he has the architecture and the biology to be able to do that. When you're constrained by your biology, you can't really go outside of that. Um, that uh, you can't go outside of the boundaries. You're bounded. Yeah, it's like it's like uh, your instrument can only pick up this. Like if you have a Geiger counter, you could only pick up radioactivity. It's not going to give you a temperature, right? It's mm -hmm. beyond its scope. You're you're limited to what you, the tool you have, and that's what you can record and perceive so just just because you take a geiger counter to you know another realm doesn't make it all of a sudden it's able to perceive it you know you're still limited to that so yeah a, a 2d person perceiving the 3d world would only see 2d cross sections of that 3d world because that's what their biology would be uh, equipped so a person entering a higher dimension would only see a 3d form of that representation you know whatever that might be mm -hmm. 
it will look strange for sure, but our biology is, you know, three dimensional and that's what we'll, we'll perceive. So which I guess right. why we're, and, we're unequipped to be able to handle the true, you know, yeah. the true state of what it means to be a higher conscious entity. Cause we are limited by our conscious, by our biology. That's why I say like when, um, and actually the, to go back to the comment, Joe, you said like, I like to hang out with people who are smarter than me. Yeah, that's true. But I think that's a, um, a, a misunderstanding in some sense of what it means to actually be smarter. Humans are only laterally smarter from each other as well. Sure. You might think somebody's smarter than you, but not really. You're better than them at certain things. They're better than you at certain things, but you look at all of us, we're hanging around the people who are around the same intelligence level as us. And even people who are, not as smart as us, um, they're still not that much dumber. An actual thing that's smarter than you is so much smarter, it's, I think, um, unimaginable, or else we'd be able to imagine it. Mm -hmm. Oh, did I freeze? No. Oh, okay. Just left us speechless. Uh, (laughs) Well, I mean, if if this... super intelligent being or whatever spoke english i think i'd still want to kick it with that that being right like i wouldn't be intimidated by its intelligence unless you're assuming benevolence though you're assuming benevolence i don't think intelligence necessarily implies benevolence i would hope it does i think it would but i am not convinced well i'm I'm not not assuming benevolence i'm just I would want to kick it with it as long as it's not a dick, right? So just not an asshole. (laughs) But here's the thing. I'm thinking of non-negligible distinctions as intelligence. A fly and you don't have much in common. I don't think you want to kick it with a fly. Like you may, it may sound nice in principle, but like if I was a if I was a fly and I spoke English, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) I I would probably find it interesting to hang out with humans. I think you're vastly mis. Um, I think you're vastly um, underestimating what it means to be truly, distinctly, and more intelligent than something. Though English to a, something that's a higher being is going to be like cow noises to something like that potentially. I, I understand that. <laughs> yeah, I'm aware. But I'm just I'm kind of being tongue in cheek, but uh, also yeah. I'm partly genuine that like. I don't care if it thinks it's cow noises, if English is cow noises. Like, if it doesn't mind speaking cow to me, then, you know, so be it. That would be the best case scenario, I I would hope. Not necessarily guaranteed, though. That's what I'm saying. I just just have the fear that anything that is vastly smart, that is smarter than us, I'm going to be a little bit afraid. That's all I'm saying. I've seen this scenario play out too many times. <laughs> you know, we never really mean to, to, to run over the, well, sometimes we do mean to kill the anthill and that's the problem. Sometimes we do. And sometimes we don't, but either way, nobody gives a damn at the end of the day, if the anthill gets destroyed. It reminds me of a quote from the Watchmen, right? Dr. Manhattan was like the world's smartest man poses no more threat to me than its smartest ant. You know, when you have a, exactly. a higher dimensional God, like everything else is beneath him. Why would he even bother and care? Right. You're not going to shed a tear. I mean, even if you ran over a cat, sure, you might feel bad, but at the end of the day, you're going to get over it. 
right? No one's coming after you. No one's going to be pissed about it. It's just like, fact that's what happens. Yeah, it's a fact of life. Anyways, I don't know how we ended up here. Um, yeah, quite the tangent. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my bad, probably. You're a savage, Terrence. You don't care about poor cats. That was fucking I would be day. devastated. I would yeah. be devastated. <laughs> I mean, I do, but I'll find a, I'll find a way to live. <laughs> that sounds so bad. Don't clip that audio, please. <laughs> Put it on your Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Eda, <Anyways>. beware. <laughs> so again, so again, I've relinquished the role of moderator. So if there's just any loose ends or something you wanted to bring up, now is your opportunity. No, I think it's been very enlightening. A uh, few hours it was nice. Yeah, I think I mean, it's definitely covered a lot of topics. I think there's still a lot of things to flesh out and to think about and to talk about, but uh, we can't do that all in this podcast. So, um, so right. maybe maybe in the future we could revisit a topic if anyone is interested in that. I, I guess I have a final question. Sure. Do you think, um, and this is for everybody, um, do you guys think? Uh, that humans will ever be able to, you know, step outside of that lateral movement of higher consciousness and actually ascend to maybe a higher conscious being by means of technological innovation, you know, or anything like that. Probably not evolutionarily, but do you think we can surpass our bounds? Yes. Eventually. We just got to get over some really stupid shit that, you know, some hurdles. But I think once you get past that, um, 100%, I think uh, there's something called the technological singularity. You know, and 100%, I think the melding between, you know, technology and human consciousness it will be a thing. And I think once that happens, like, well, it's going to take off so fast. Uh, I, I can think of, like, real colonization of the galaxy at that point because the human mind will not be uh, limited to a organic body you can have something like Neumann machines just spreading outward and colonizing the universe in in that sense well we got to get through some really stupid shit first (laughs) you know once you get past that I think uh, there's real hope you know because just of the acceleration of the progress of uh, our you know, science and technology, I think 100% will reach a point in the not-so-distant future. Yeah, not to spark a whole new conversation, but that's that reminded me of something that Ricky said about, like, how this trend of making the universe conscious, right? And that's that was a really interesting thought, right? Because we're, I was just thinking, we're basically taking, if Terrence is right and uh, consciousness is an emergent phenomena, then we're taking all this non-conscious material in the universe and we're uplifting it to consciousness, right? We're bringing it along with us, right? So we're slow, if that's true and we colonize the universe, we would be, you know, 
propelling consciousness to exist throughout the entire universe, which would be crazy. Like, oh, I, I see you guys don't have consciousness. Let me bestow it upon you. <laughs> like like uh, benefactors, you know? Well, it's like, now you can suffer. So maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> I had to suffer, so now you do. Boom. You know, it's like, reminds me of this uh, hilarious meme. It just like cracks me up every time I see it because I saved it. Um, it's a picture of this uh, amphibian. And the caption says, uh, this motherfucker decided to step off land and now I have to get up early for work. And there's like a bunch of middle fingers. And I was like, yeah, that's, I feel that, you know, from 400 million years ago. So that could be us 100 million years from now where we're bestowing consciousness and suffering through this universe, you know. So you're like, to be aware is to suffer and to suffer is to you know be alive so you're welcome (laughs) and then we could be part of like some future alien memes you know thanks humans and a bunch of middle fingers person that reminds me of this uh it's i think it's maybe similar that amphibian it says uh i don't know if you guys can see that it says how it started and it's that amphibian oh yeah and then (laughs) how it's going uh you can't probably not focus but Basically, no, it's a that, guy like ripping his face off. That's the same amphibian. <laughs> they just photoshopped a bunch of middle fingers around yeah, it. Yeah, that's that asshole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, thanks, fish. Ricky and Irene, will we surpass our? Will we ex- go into the higher consciousness? Uh, Irene, do you want to go first, or I can, if you want. Um. I mean, I agree with Ed that I think it's possible that we will reach it. Um, so that I don't have any much more to add in that regard. Yeah, I think also it's possible. I wonder, um, you know, there's this idea of like, also not to spark a whole new conversation, but just to throw it in there, like what if someday we could upload our consciousness digitally? And then what if we, maybe there's some way to expand it in, you know, the digital world. So that's kind of an interesting question too. Now we're going back to the Matrix. <laughs> exactly. I want that steak. That steak's going to taste real good. Yeah. Ignorance <laughs> is bliss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, so it sounds like it's a good point to wrap it up. I just want to uh, thank you all for your time. You've been very generous. Um, and if you're listening, thank you for making it this far. We really appreciate it. Uh, we love Gluttons for pain. and so hope you enjoyed the first iteration of our book club podcast feel free to submit any ideas for the future and then i'll open the floor to uh anything you guys want to plug or just want to say bye you know Um, i'll say sorry go ahead i was gonna say go check out eigen bros podcast please if you guys like talks like this we do shit like this all the time Maybe not as not as um, long as this one, but um, yeah, just check it. I Eigen Bros. I wrote it down, so I'm definitely gonna check it out. Yeah, uh, I have nothing to plug, but you know, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, it was nice talking to y'all. From a different, y'all are all physicists, so it's cool to be like the one psychologist, um, you know, in this group. And I try to keep up, so I think I did all right. Yeah, appreciate you coming. 
definitely your input was much appreciated. Thanks a lot. So, yeah. yeah, thank you for having me. This is uh, interesting. I know I was bugging you, Joe, uh, about the book club and <laughs> everything like when you had me on a while ago. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, was, that was very nice. <laughs> all right, great. Irene, did you have anything you want to say? Or? No, I mean, I just want to thank you all again for coming on here. Um, you all brought very great perspectives and I'm grateful and I'm probably going to uh, think about all of this stuff later. So thank you. All right. Anyways, um, thank you for making this far, making it this far and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Sure. See you. Bye. Bye. Have a good one. Bye.